Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have an, an amazing special guest, Senior Chief Gabe Morris, United States Navy, retired. Thank you for being here, Gabe. Yes, good to, good to be with you, Luke. Thank you so much for having us on here. Um, hopefully, I, I'm okay to call you Luke because that's all I've ever known you as. So um, you don't have to call me senior chief and, and, uh, and I won't, uh, you know, I won't remember to call you professor. So we'll be good. Now, did you ever see the film GI Jane? Oh yes, I did. Uh, I, okay. I'm sorry to bring up those painful memories, but they, I don't know why I was thinking of that film. I think I watched it recently again. I don't know. Why, I don't know why. I don't know. No, no, no. There's a master chief in the film. Uh, and I don't know who the knuckleheads they, they had on as far as consultants go on the, on the set. I mean, on so many things, I mean, where do you start, but, but just like such a basic thing is they called the master chief chief many times. Yeah. And every time I just was cringing once. And I, it's like, you idiots, that's okay. So the difference between a chief and a senior chief is a pretty big deal. The, the difference between a senior chief and a master chief is a big deal. The difference between mm -hmm. a master chief and a chief is a big friggin' deal. It would be like yes. as idi idiotic as calling a commander lieutenant. Yes. You know, because it's two ranks. And, yes. you know, when you get up to the higher ranks, it kind of makes a difference. I think. Yes. And master like chiefs eat people for breakfast. So, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, if people don't, first of all, Hollywood, Hollywood, if you're listening idiots, and then secondly, everybody else, this is a senior chief. So tell us what a senior chief is. Yeah. So, um, so in the services, um, every service sort of, has, <coughs> excuse me, has a separation of, of its senior enlisted, Folks, you've got, of course, got enlisted an officer. Uh, you're enlisted an officer. Um, actually, um, Lucas and I served together as enlisted in uh, in Hawaii, and so that's that's really our history to be, you know, to bring about full disclosure. Um, and uh, in that enlisted, those enlisted ranks, when you get up in the Navy to the E7 through E9 grades, the, that's the top of the. The, the, the top of the uh, pyramid when it comes to the enlisted side, and so it goes E1 through E9. So um, E7, E8, and E9 for us is set apart differently. We dress differently. Um, it's, uh, you know, they, they dine in separate places. They, they hang out with separate groups. You're not allowed to hang out with people below that or people above that socially. And so uh, they're their own group. And so e, senior chief is E8 right there, smack dab in between um, chief and master chief. So the highest you can get is master chief on the enlisted side. Top. And you were one below that. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So by numbers, because that was my last job in the military, I was a, I was a personnel guy uh, as I was finishing things up. You get to a point where they, they, uh, you know, they, they want you to tell other people what to do instead of just doing yourself. And so uh, by numbers, um, which I had to submit routinely, 1% of the enlisted force is master chief. It's reserved for 1% of the enlisted force um, E9 across any of the services. And then two and a half percent or two and a quarter percent, somewhere between that is what E8 is across all services. Cool. I'm ready. So, Gabe, I met you 
man i'm trying to it's hurting my brain how long ago it was how long ago well was i can it? almost 30 years ago yeah i can i can remember it pretty clearly actually we i met you at the same time as i met my wife um each of us heading to now this is your uh, first wife in yeah my first and only your first yes. oh your first and only okay Yes, that's right. So yes, I guess also my first wife, um, but they know each other. They're friends. It's great. Um, but in any case, we uh, we met on our way to church. If you'll remember uh, Mr. Plot picking us up in a, in a van and taking all of us to, uh, to oh, I guess, what was it? Uh, Carmel Valley Baptist Church, I think is what that's it was right. at the time. That's right. Yep. And so, uh, yeah. So I met my wife on that. And that's, uh, that's basically, I'll, I didn't know anything of her except that when I saw her, I turned to my roommate, who was a Vietnamese linguist, and I said, I'm going to marry that lady. And sure enough, I did. But then when I got on the, the van or the, you know, it was a Volkswagen bus, there you were. And uh, so we met, I guess that would have been 1994, um, probably early 1994, when we first met, maybe late 1993. Okay. Did you get there in 93? I got there. I graduated boot camp late 93. So okay. I was, I think right. it was September of 93 when I graduated. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's actually very helpful for me. Um, because I'm trying to think of where I met Lieutenant plot and Lieutenant plot was a student at the Naval postgraduate school at the time. That's right. Which is in the city of Monterey, California. And I was stationed at the time on the Presidio of Monterey, California, at an army, it's an army base uh, called, army school called the Defense Language Institute. Actually, it's a defense department of defense school, but it's run by the army. At least it was back then. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned a Vietnamese linguist right in the middle of that talking about where we were going to church and uh you mentioned carmel valley so there was a few little details people were like probably wondering what the heck does vietnamese have to do with going to a church in carmel valley so yeah, what, would you, what did you what did you mean by that what did you mean by carmel valley baptist and there's a vietnamese linguist there you mean there was a vietnamese guy in the van no. So, uh, so the way it worked at the Defense Language Institute, of course, um, and, and you lived in the same, same barracks as I did at that time, uh, as I recall. But yeah. Um, yeah, the way it worked is, is we were all housed together, regardless of what language you happen to have been. We were all within a couple of buildings of each other. Um, uh, you know, really all of us waiting, going through schooling, learning foreign languages uh, so that we could head out into, uh, into the fleet, as it were, uh, to do our jobs in different places. And so, um, so, yeah, my roommate at the time was going through Vietnamese language school, and I at the time was going through Tagalog language school. So uh, Tagalog, for those who don't know, is a language that, that is spoken even today in the Philippines. Um, it is probably the primary language. I would say, you know, folks who are actually from the Philippines uh, get a little disgruntled if you call it Filipino because there are so many dialects spoken there and each of them just as valid, you know, has a claim uh, to Filipino as, as Tagalog, but uh, Tagalog is what they sent me through. Um, I can give you, so a little backstory to that, how I ended up in Tagalog is 
Uh, I took a test like we all did, and we take this test with a fake language. It, it, there are no, there are rules made up about a fake, la fake language that tell you when you see this particular pattern, it means this. When you see this pattern, it means that. And your idea is to, or the idea is that you remember those patterns throughout the entire test and you apply them to this fake language that you have. And each of them, maybe, maybe a word has a definition and you have to, so basically the better you do on that test, the more options in theory you have as far as which languages you can uh, you can go learn going to the Defense Language Institute. So I did fairly well on that. And when I showed up, of course, I believed the world was my oyster. But when I sat down across the table from that chief, he said to me, um, do you want Chinese, Vietnamese or Tagalog? And I said, well, I know what Chinese is and I want nothing to do with it. Uh, I know what Vietnamese is, also want nothing to do with it. But what I don't know is Tagalog. So give me that. I'll take it. And uh, so so I got I got Tagalog. Uh, um, that, that's what was given to me. My roommate had Vietnamese. And uh, and then you uh, were in a different schoolhouse entirely um, from me, but you were still in the same area. So how uh, that relates to, to uh, Carmel Valley Baptist Church is none of us had vehicles. Not a one of us had a vehicle where we were. And so uh, yeah. it was on foot every place we went. <laughs> and uh, I had a bike. And this one guy. Yeah, well, there you bike. go. So you were one step ahead of us. And you were also brave if you rode it down that hill in front yeah. of the, the Presidio of Monterey because it was brutal. Right. You talking remember about, that. Are you talking about Franklin? Yes. Yes. Franklin. Oh, yeah. I rode it down. Um, some Franklin. poor soul wrecked on that thing. So, yeah. I rode it. Um, I rode my bike down Franklin all the time. And it was well, getting back up Franklin that was a big pain in the butt. I watched a lot I, of people carry their bikes up. Yeah. So, yeah. A lot of walking your bike. I mean, I did ride it up a few times. I mean, you know, probably a lot, but, um, yeah. But, I, but in terms of going to Carmel Valley First Baptist, mm -hmm. we, we, you would go the opposite direction. You would go through the Taylor Gate, which is now closed yep. since That's right. 9 11. And you'd go through the Taylor Gate. Um, and I was, I'm not allowed to say my wife's name on here, but, I was very happy that I took my wife uh, to the Defense Language Institute to show her around before 9-11. So she saw the way it was when we were there first learning our languages. And uh, it used to be that civilians would drive through all the time. I mean, people who lived in the neighborhood would just drive through the base to get from one yes. side of the uh, peninsula to the other. Yeah, um, It's just a convenient way to do it. And um, there was no the city bus issue. came through the city bus came through. That's right. Yeah. And it was actually a convenient way to get around. Um, mm -hmm. And you you could walk right outside the, the Taylor gate to Campagno's uh, sandwich shop, which is still there. And the same guy still runs it. And he claims to remember me every time I go back. Yeah. Same. And I'm like, yes, oh, I don't know if you remember me, but okay. I, you know, he, he I tried to you. sell it to me last time I was there. Oh, so, is that right? Uh, I don't he always yes. gives me a free piece of cake he's such yes. a sweet man i don't even yes. know his name yes. do you know his name uh bennett his name is bennett? his name is ben bennett oh yep that's a juicy detail yeah bennett. that's right you got to hold on to that bennett runs campanos that's right okay so then but see then you'd have to take the 68 
which is sometimes called the uh, Holman Freeway, named after H.R. Mm. Holman, who ran, ran a department store, the only department store between San Francisco and Los Angeles mm. for a long time. And it was in Pacific Grove. And there's a Holman building down there still. It's now uh, turned into apartments. But for the longest time, it, for decades, it was just vacant. As far as I could tell, I used to always look at it and it was creepy building. I got, I have, I have pictures of it, but it, that would be kind of scary to ride your bike down that because there was not a lot of room cars and stuff. And, and then to be on the one going South to Carmel, that would not be safe either. I don't think. And then you'd have to take no, Carmel. No, not a good Valley idea. In. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was a, that was quite a time. And, and we were fortunate to have Lieutenant plot. Uh, think uh, he was very evangelical and missional wouldn't mm. you say i would say absolutely yeah he um he saw it as a as a ministry to do what he did uh, yeah. and it wasn't just him as i recall there was another guy uh there whose name i he, you know we, we were watching was that his name gary gary i think his day i'm pretty sure he was his name was gary i think he had been a um a navigator in, yeah uh, right F, f14s or something like that yeah, yeah, mustache. Yeah, so they they had kind of a joint ministry of uh, yeah. of making sure that people who couldn't get to church from the Defense Language Institute had a way to go. And so uh, I don't know how you found out about it, but for me, I I found a flyer. They put a flyer on the yeah. on the quarter deck, which is the ceremonial you know entrance right. to the uh, to the building, and and you know I followed the flyer to the bus, and so. Uh, my life was never the same. I'm mean, not mm. just because of meeting you, but also there was my wife that was different. Um, so, so yeah, um, you know, we, he uh, was faithful to take us out there every goodness. I mean, every Sunday for the rest of the time I was there at the defense language Institute, I think. So uh, at least until I got a vehicle, which was quite a ways into the future. So. Yeah. Uh, Gabe, I remember you well as, as, um, a solid Christian um, and someone that was my age and someone that was, um, you know, uh, like when you started dating your, your now wife, I was at your wedding uh, there on Lover's Yes, Point. you were. Yeah. Video evidence. Uh, me and uh, Joe, F Joe, Joe, uh, Joe from Ed my class. Ed Edmonds. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I should say his last name, but. I guess yeah. I already kind of did. Uh, Shannon yeah. Bullington. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there, there were quite a few folks that I, I looked back on that, um, uh, that footage. And, and what was interesting is there was so little to do back in those days that uh, the idea of going to a wedding of somebody you didn't know that well was pretty attractive. So apart from, you know, you all who we went to church with, a lot of people showed up, people I can't identify now. So well, it was good. That's a beautiful spot. And that's a wonderful place. Love first point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually were stationed together first in California, not That's Hawaii. Right. And then later That's we were true. stationed in the same place in Hawaii. And it seems to me that I used to talk to you quite a bit in Hawaii. Do you have a memory of that at all? Well, yes, I, I do. Um, actually, you you spent a lot of time at our house in between your deployments. And so we'd have That's you right. over for dinner. That's right. um, you know, we, uh, yeah, we, we even dropped you off uh, to some of your deployments from time to time where we, we, uh, we dropped you off at the, you know, at the uh, tarmac to go do what you, you did. And, 
And, uh, and then, yeah. you know, we, we worked in similar, uh, we were probably about a floor apart in terms of which, you know, yeah. where we worked when we were back, uh, you know, not deployed, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I saw you all the time. We went on hikes together. I've got pictures of you heading up to some waterfalls with us. And, and so, uh, yeah, I'd say pretty much we adopted you for a season. That's right. Yeah. That was before I was married. Yeah. I have very fond memories of that. I was leave, living on Wheeler Army Airfield at the time. <clears throat> you and me both. And yeah. I think you were in the housing. I was not in the, I did not have a house like you did. But, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, uh, let, let me pause it and ask if I can ask. Okay, we're back. We're back. And I just had to ask Gabe if it was okay if I told this anecdote. Because <clears throat> it was contrary to policy. <laughs> at the time but i was a i was a gun owner in the navy and uh they were registered lawfully registered i i hated doing it i hated going to the police department and uh you know bringing these i think i brought the weapons in i i can't remember i i mean i how do you do that how do you bring the but anyway i think i i registered them i filled the form out and I remember being there and I remember thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. They wanted to know how much ammunition I had. I just left it blank and they, they didn't even, you know, that was back when you could buy ammunition at Walmart. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And I was 20 years old too. And I was registering pistols, <laughs> which is before you're legally allowed to buy a pistol. <laughs> <laughs> And they, they, again, didn't bat an eye. I, maybe it was because I was in the military and they could, they could clearly see, and I don't know, but anyway, yeah. uh, my form says I'm age 20 and I'm registering pistols and I'm in the United States Navy and, uh, I'm on Wheeler army airfield. And a lot of times people don't realize this. So I'm, that's why I'm including this, this little anecdote. Yeah is that I was in the barracks. I was in the Navy barracks. This is, and I know this is a mind bender for people. They're like, wait, you said army. Now you're saying Navy. Well, the Navy barracks, the Navy had some kind of deal with the army where we had a barrack and a barracks is just dorms. It, it would be like being on a college campus and it's like a dorm in a college campus, except for, it's a little bit more serious than that. There's not a bunch of left-wing crap everywhere, and there's not a bunch of potheads everywhere. But otherwise, it's like that. And there was a policy against keeping firearms in your dorm. So it's a little odd for me to say this because I'm so patriotic, and I love the military, and I was so proud of serving my country at the time. But total idiotic policy to disarm veteran people serving in the military i you know i still don't really understand it i think it's still you know i i i don't think you can just blame it on clinton who was president at the time but uh i mean he could have stopped it but anyway there was no there i don't know if there was a policy against there probably wasn't a policy against having them in your house right on base if you were married or did they have no housing it was okay okay yeah, it's okay to have them in housing, but well, you could have them, but they had to be registered. And so, you, I mean, I guess together we completed a policy um, between okay. the two of us. 
but uh, you know, you yeah. know, okay to store in. So, so yeah, I think together we were legit. So Gabe, Gabe stored my firearms in his house that he had on the same base. And, and then when I got married and I moved off base, of course, there's no problem having the guns in your apartment because that, you know, it's hello, it's America. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, that was back before the Heller decision and the McDonald decision, but Hawaii had no problem with that. Thank God. Of course, there's a Republican governor at the time, but anyway, but, um, all that to say that uh, Gabe was a red-blooded American even back then, and God bless him for that. And and I I loved uh, I trusted him, I trusted him enough to have my guns in his house when I'm gone, <laughs> and I'm glad I did too because I got when I was deployed one time, my department moved me from Wheeler Army Airfield to Schofield Barracks. I remember and when that happened. Yeah. Do you remember that? Okay. And yeah, Matt, uh, I think he be later became a master chief, but it was petty officer, Mike Lester, that was in charge of. Him. Oh yes. Yep. I and, remember him. Yeah. And when I got to my new room it, on Schofield barracks, when I got back from my deployment, it was a little bit just because I loved that room I had on Wheeler Wheeler. I had it all to myself. It was a big room, uh, Florida wall ceilings that went, it was a, as probably 12 foot ceiling it was great. Um, and then I went from that to Schofield barracks, which was a ghetto. It was like, first of all, I mean, it was seriously like being in the projects or something. I, for yeah. to me, that's what I thought. And yeah. I, I get, I get there. I get back from deployment. There's two people I've never met in the room. So I go from having a room to myself. And then there, now there's two people I've never met. I don't know who these people are. One guy has a wife beater on. He's a white guy. He's got a wife beater on. He's drinking like uh Michelob or something. He's drinking some beer that I never would drink. And he's, he's got these glasses on that make him look to me, looks like a, the Unabomber or a serial killer or something like that. And then there's a guy that's face down on his bed in his underwear and he's black and he's got, I don't know how he had that big a hair. Cause I'm not sure because uh, he must've, I, I don't know how he did it, but he had this comb in his hair and he, he had the music on so loud it, and it was some kind of rap music or something like that, but it was so loud. And then there, all these boxes were stacked up everywhere and it just had those boxes said Dean on them. And apparently that's what Petty Officer Lester wrote on my boxes dean because he didn't want everybody to know who these boxes were because i had so many books and everybody was so angry that they had to move these heavy 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 books so he called him he called me dean That's and great. uh so anyway i was only on uh, schofield barracks for i think a month before um somebody moved out of gordon walker's apartment i think it was steve bezo and i took his place in makakino ah. there off base yeah God. But um, absolutely. So I was able to retrieve my guns from you at that time. But uh, so then you became a police officer for a while, right? You yeah, uh, I did. You went from being a linguist to a police officer. Um, yeah, I did. Um, it, that was an interesting sort of uh, transition for us because, you know, I, I got to the end of that tour and 
honestly, I still had no idea by the time I got to the end of that tour, whether or not I even liked the Navy. I, I didn't know that because all I'd done is work joint. And by joint, I mean joint service. So I'd only ever worked with, I, I mean, my supervisors were Air Force, they were Army, they were or Marine. Uh, I hardly saw another Navy person. And so, you know, people would ask me, well, are you going to re-enlist? And I would say, I, I don't know. I don't even, I don't even, I don't know what this Navy thing is. So unlike you, so you, you were in much more of a, of a deployable kind of job. And so because of that, you know, you, you did a lot more, um, you know, you were around the Navy quite a bit more. So <laughs> they asked me that I, I couldn't actually answer the question. And so I said, well, um, I, I, you know, I'll let you know when I figure it out. And they, uh, then this message came out all Navy message. And it said, um, you know, everybody in all of the Navy and all of the different job fields needs to send somebody to go do law enforcement. It used to be on a rotation. Mm. So it was kind of a watch bill of sorts that would say, okay, so the cryptologic technician, you know, interpretive community has X number of people um, in this kind of in the pipeline for this, and they would stay for three years. And then they might be replaced from by somebody from a boatswain's mate community or from a you know, gunner's mate or somebody else. And so what they, what happened was we got a black eye as the cryptologic technician community on the whole, because we had not been sending people to that. And so uh, the, the message came out and said, um, you have X amount of time to, uh, to send us people, or we're just going to start picking. And so when I saw that message, you know, I saw, and I thought, well, um, you know, law enforcement's cool. I, I, I could maybe see doing that. That's kind of interesting. And so I, I came and said, yeah, well, okay, send me. And I knew I would go to a Navy base and I would get a chance to be around the Navy. And I would know for sure by that point, is this what I want to do? So I went to law enforcement training in, uh, well, I, I actually asked, I requested the duty station of Naval Air Station Fallon, Nevada. Um, there were only six maybe openings at the time. And I chose Fallon, Nevada, and I called the person. So go ahead. Oh, I was yeah. just going to ask, was there a list of, of, a, yeah. uh, or did you already know you wanted to live in Fallon or for some reason? Oh, I had no, I had no desire or knowledge of Fallon really at that point. I, all I knew is, is I had a choice of about six places and they said, and there was no guarantee I would get any one of them, but here, you know, they said, well, here are your six possibilities. And I saw them and I said, well, could you, would you send me to Fallon, Nevada? Because in my mind, I thought, well, that's as close as I'll probably ever get to Colorado, which is where I'm from. And so where we're both from actually. And so I said, well, that's probably the closest I'll ever get to Colorado. Let's do that. And she thought I was, I mean, like she'd won the lottery, the, the person who made the assignment choices because nobody wanted to go to Fallon, Nevada. And I had no idea what that was about or why, but so then they sent me to law enforcement training and, um, and in law enforcement training, which is it takes place in San Antonio, Texas, at the at Lackland Air Force Base, there, the Air Force runs the the law enforcement training program on the whole, and then each of the services uh, kind of joins up and puts their own spin on law enforcement. Okay. But but the Air Force is sort of the executive agent for law enforcement training for the all military. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so you yeah, were in class. Yeah. With, so they sent with, us there. Was a joint. Mm -hmm. It was a joint uh, classroom. No. No, it was, uh, it took place on Lackland, but all of our training was actually conducted by Navy masters at arms. Um, you know, a couple of gunners mates and things, but master at arms is the law enforcement rating, you know, typically in, in the Navy. And, and so gotcha. they ran the, they ran the, the, uh, class 
And really what they sent me through is called law enforcement specialist training. Hmm. And so it, it was everything that a master at arms would go through minus one class, which was shipboard law, because we were not intended to go on ship and, and do what we did. It was at, at a, you know, a somewhere land. And, and so they, yeah, I went through it, loved it. I, I found what I thought might even be my calling going forward for a while. Um, and I did discover after that, boy, I, I love this Navy stuff. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about that joint stuff, but I love the Navy. The Navy is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all about that part. But what, and, what uh, about the Navy is in Nevada, though? I mean, there's no ships there. So what? tell people what, what's in Fallon, Nevada. Well, I, I, I would hate to burst the bubble of the audience here, but, but what is in Fallon, Nevada is actually, that's where Top Gun actually is. So it used to be that Top Gun, when you think of the, you know, the, the movies and, and uh, you know, really all, all the, yeah. the beautiful scenery that you see right. in those movies um, once upon a time. And even at the time of the first movie, it was in Miramar, California, that was where Top Gun used to be. And so um, there are still squadrons that are in California in various places, but when they show yeah. you Top Gun, that's where that was. And so in the middle of the desert, about hour and half East of, of uh, Reno, Nevada. Okay. So yeah. they're not, they're not doing their dog fights over in New York city. That's not a good idea. No, it's really a bad idea, honestly. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, Independence I Day. Yeah. That, why uh, why that's... would you want the desert? Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That well, makes a lot uh, of sense. That, no, no. It makes a lot of sense. You, you, know. <laughs> you, you know, yes. Makes a lot of you sense. You do know. Yeah. Now, so uh, was was it Top Gun when you went there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It cool. It was, it was, um, it, you know, and the, so, Full disclosure, I know, I know Top Gun a little was, bit. I know Miramar yeah. a little bit. It's a Marine Corps base now, and yeah, it, the that's reason right. I know it is because Gunfighter Tactical is the was the best gun store in California, and it was right across the street from the base. And we're really uh, sad. Yeah. Gunfighter Tactical, we're sad you're gone, but continue. Okay, so it was Top Gun. Yeah. Yeah. So it, so Top Gun, it was actually Top Gun while I was there and that had its pros and its cons. Um, so full disclosure for me, Top Gun is actually what suckered me into joining the Navy. Um, that's, that's <laughs> what planted the seed initially for me. And really? so I, no, oh yeah, I had it in my mind. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to join because, so when I went to the recruiter the first time I said, I said, you know, on, on Top Gun, the movie where you've got those guys on the, on the flight deck of that big aircraft carrier oh, yeah. and they're dressed yeah, yeah. in colors and they're waving oh. stuff and they're like doing all these cool things. I said, oh, man. I want to be that guy. That's awesome. And that man. recruiter looked at me and said, you do not want to be that guy. And I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, no, yeah. I mean, I want to be that guy. I said, no, you don't want to be that guy. And of course he looked through his book of what quotas he was going to have to make to try right, to, right, you know, right. that every, every recruiter has a list of how many they have to get yeah. of which type of job field. And, and so, uh, they so tried he to said, get me to become a be, welder is you want to be a, yeah. Yeah. He's like, he said, you want to be a nuke? I said, no, I don't want to be yeah. a nuke. Yeah. I said, isn't there math in that? Yeah. And he said, yeah, a lot of exactly. it. And I said, well, yeah. you don't want me to no. be a nuke. No matter. And so, yeah. So he said, CTI, you could be a CTI. Yeah. Be a CTI. And I said, what's a CTI? And he had no idea, but he lied to me. And he said, oh, uh, James Bond, all the stuff <laughs> that you see in James Bond, that's what you're going to be sure. doing. Yeah. That was not what I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you didn't carry a little, I, little Walter? I never got an Austin Martin or an Aston Martin or a, you know, uh, yeah. You didn't carry Walter, Walter PPK. No, none of that. I, well, 
yeah, occasionally a nine millimeter, but that was no. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what was there. That's what suckered me into joining. So when I went there, um, we, it was, you know, it was kind of neat to see, um, neat to be up close and personal to get to witness some of those things. Um, there's a darker side to those things as well. And that when you fly that fast at the, you know, at, at uh, those low altitudes and all that, you do end up with your fair share of crashes and things that you have to go as, as a security department guy, you got to go out to, you know, to, to watch over and help with the cleanup and those types of things. So there's a little bit of rougher side to some of those things as well, but, um, but all in all, apart from being in the middle of nowhere, it was probably one of my best assignments in the military. So. Wow. Did you ever have to arrest anybody? Uh, many, many times. So <laughs> it, uh, you know, that sailors um, find their way into all kinds of trouble. So I can well, say I this know that and I know that because there's, yeah, cuss, yeah. there's cussing and top gun. Yeah, absolutely. There's trouble. So much, you see, you see right there, trouble, lots see? of trouble. There you go. So, so it, uh, what would the interesting thing about that area is that the base itself, the total population of the base, when nobody is there from all of the squadrons. So on Top Gun, the movie where you see everybody comes from all over the Navy with their very best fighter pilots to come there to, to compete in this Top Gun thing. Right. Well, with each of those fighter pilots, those squadrons all have support people that come with them. So mm. it's not just those guys. It's all of the right. people that come with them. Yeah. So that base would, would increase. Yeah, from it's like about, Whitney Houston with her entourage. You know, it's it, the same exactly thing. same. Perfect. Exactly the same thing. Um, so they would uh, they would plus up from about twelve hundred people that base would to about five thousand people overnight, literally overnight. And so when that would happen, um, our, our jobs got to be very, very interesting, uh, very quickly. And, yeah. and so I, I think those were probably, um, it, yeah, I had plenty of opportunities. I, you know, I, I did get to experience some of the, uh, you know, some of the arrogance that comes from those, uh, those movies and, and people being recruited by those movies. Like I was, I, did you, I, ever, uh, have, did I you was, ever have to uh, arrest an officer? Oh yes. Oh, oh, oh yes. Man, that'd be great. Yeah. Did you, did you beat them? Yeah. They're you, like, you know, no, no, no beatings. No, oh, no. Okay. Uh, body cams and the whole nine yards are actually dash cams. I should say, cause back then we weren't that high tech, yeah. but you know, right. we had dash cams and recorders. So, um, did you have to salute I, I them first to, before you arrested them? <laughs> uh, when you approach the car, you do. So it's kind of a strange dynamic, you know, <laughs> that is um, really weird. If you think about it like this, right? So with a police officer now and wherever you are, if a police officer walks up to the car, um, the person who looks out the window at them is not trying to determine whether or not they outrank them, which is different about military law enforcement. Yeah, right. You know, they look and they say, well, okay, what do you wear on your collar? Should I pay attention yeah. to you or should I not? Yeah. Um, so it does change your, your verbal judo skills have to become strong pretty quickly in that job field because you you know, you, you're uh, swimming in deep political waters, you know, yeah. even the lowest ranking person every single day when you're doing that. So did you, know, you feel, I, I, did you ever feel pressure not to arrest somebody because of that? Um, I, well, so, so a secret about myself is that, um, that kind of pressure tends to push me in the opposite direction. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, yes, there were times when there was pressure for that, but typically when somebody would try to pull that card, it just pretty much uh, concreted me the other direction where I would say, huh? Yep. Thank you for that. You just made my decision easier. You know, I yeah, might've yeah. had some discretion in it, but eh, right. Right. Can't, yeah. can't do that. Huh. So, 
you can't force humility on people, but you know, you can no. try. So what were the uh, offenses? Uh, too much chewing tobacco in their mouth or what was it? What was the, what was typically what it was? I think well, I know what it was. we, we did have one once upon a time. Um, well, so th it ranged, I, I would say, you know, um, like most law enforcement anywhere in any context, um, domestic violence is something that you run into with some regularity. Uh, not that it's like no, it's any, you know, not like it's disproportionate compared to the rest of society. It's, the military is just a microcosm of society. And so you're not getting any more of any of that than anywhere else. But mm -hmm. on a small base like that, you know, you, you just know everybody. So you kind of, you get into those things a little more. Okay. A lot of times it wasn't even violence as much as it was just you have people who have been deployed for the better part of 10 years of their marriage. And then you put them back together in a house for, you know, a tour. And, you know, they're supposed to know how to, how to play well together and get along and all those things. And that just doesn't come naturally. So you spend some time with those, uh, you know, those situations, but when, when the squadrons came in, it was, of course, they came without family. They, they came with just other squadron folks. Right. And, um, you know, you were a part of squadron, you know, life at some point, but the fighter yeah. pilot and the helo squadron guys are a little different breed. So when you would, uh, they would all show up at one time. Sometimes the only thing you could classify it as was, a, you know, was a riot, um, you know, because it would always start with uh, name calling and then it would always devolve from there when when you would get large groups of people together with lots of uh, testosterone and it doesn't always work well. But um, yeah, so you know, a lot of stuff like that, of course, just like anywhere you, you dealt with a certain percentage, you had drug related um, offenses and things because that's just the nature of again, microcosm of society. And, and while it's right. screened out compared to the rest of society, you still deal with some of that stuff. So, uh, you know, a little bit, of, a little bit of everything in the mix. So Gabe, uh, you were, you finished that deployment there in Fallon, Nevada. You were what a second class petty officer at the time. I was, I was selected for second class petty officer, uh, while I was there. And then, yep. As soon as I finished up, I was a yeah, second class. And so you yeah. were probably finishing what year seven, something, what, how many years had you finished? Yeah, that? no, that's about, that's about right. Um, I, like I said, I joined in 93 and I, that would have been around 2000, uh, that I had finished that tour. I was there for about three and a half years before, um, before moving on to the next place. So I had kind of a decision to make at that point. They had, uh, they'd offered me the opportunity to remain in the law enforcement community uh, oh, for really? a period of time. Okay. Uh, because yeah, they did. Um, because Tagalog, as I said, that's what I'd learned going through the defense language Institute the first time yeah. they had determined that it's what we now call dominant enforce, which just means that there are a bunch of people in the Navy who speak that already. So we don't need you is what it really means. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they, they said, well, we're going to have to do something else with you. Um, so the law enforcement community was pushing to try to keep me. And uh, I mean, it was a successful tour, uh, you know, praise the Lord. I ended up, uh, you know, I was a sailor of the year for the Naval Air Station at that time. And, no and kidding. Uh, you know, wow. of course it wasn't even my field. Yeah. That's so it, really was, it was something that it, it, it was, I didn't really realize it at the time that it was a big deal. I mean, I just kind of took it as um, you know, took it in stride, but then later on, the longer you're around, you realize, well, actually, I mean, those were, that wasn't even my, my group of people, you know? And, right. and so 
there were some people kind of upset about it, but they, they were trying to, because of that, they were trying to push me to stay uh, not in Fallon, but as a law enforcement specialist. Um, but honestly, wow. kind of in the sovereign plan of God, he, he saw ahead of time of what was going to happen. And I couldn't, I might've made that decision, but come September 11th, many of those people who were in the law enforcement um, specialist field, like I was, uh, ended up basically just becoming prison guards and, you know, in, uh, in Iraq and things like that. And I, I didn't really ever have a, I, I was an investigator when I finished, I was a, a, a an investigator for the uh, Navy region Southwest. And so um, I didn't, I, I loved investigations and I did not want to go back um, necessarily into just doing, yeah. you know, uh, just, yeah, like garden prisons and things. And so, yeah, they, uh, well, I don't know, me, you remember me Bill Callen? You. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Bill contacted me and gave me options is basically what he did. So I remember him. Mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time remembering what his face looks like exactly, but I do remember him. Well, I don't know why I can't remember his face exactly right now, but if I saw him, I would be like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, let me ask you a civilian type of a question. If they're sure. listening, most people are civilians listening to this and they they're trying to keep track of what you're saying. And it sounds very interesting, but why is it that the Navy would bring you up to be an investigator, which sounds kind of like an important thing. And it sounds like it requires some experience. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't they just, you know, capitalize on that and, and then continue you on growing you in that skill set? Why, why would they knock you down to being a security guard? It doesn't make well, any sense to me. Yeah. And, and so what's interesting is as a law enforcement specialist, instead of being a part of what they, uh, the law enforcement community in the Navy is kind of the, the alphas in that community are the master at arms, you know, the masters at arms are, that's the, those are the people who joined the Navy as that job field, just like I joined the Navy as a, yeah, you know, it's foreign not a language rank. guy. Right. We already it said is. master chief, but that's a yes. rank, but this right. is a job. Okay. This, that's right. So that's when, when you see that, um, actually the first time I ever heard that was from He-Man, uh, you know, masters of the universe, they actually had a <laughs> master at arms in there. Um, but, but that, that community, they're sort of, they get top priority. Uh, so it was kind of a big deal and strange that I took sailor of the year from that. And that's in part because I was com competing against people who were actually supposed to be in that job field. And so um, because I was not a master at arms, I was still a cryptologic technician when I was doing all of this stuff, they owned me. They had the cryptologic technician community had uh, ownership of my rights, if you will. That's the and CTI. So, you mentioned CTI before, and that's what you're talking about. Yes. Language person. That's right. And that stands for cryptologic technician interpretive. So I did not cease to be one of those. And I think nobody probably anticipated that I would, uh, that I would end up kind of rising through the ranks within that thing during that tour, self-included. I didn't think that I would either. Um, but I, I just took to it like a fish to water. And so, um, so when basically I would have started, they'd have kicked me back to the bottom of the, the ladder as soon as I moved to a new duty station. And, uh, and so, yeah, they would have said, great, you know, get on you with this experience. That's all wonderful. But now you're, you know, you're a newbie again. You need, you're not one of us. You need to go back down to this, yeah, that, okay. you know, to this other, um, kind so of, so it's a systemic, field, so. it's kind of a yeah. system problem. It's not really mm -hmm. any person that's an idiot 
it's it's the system as it's designed is kind of an idiot <laughs> yeah that's right is that fair to say yeah and it, they don't even do it's absolutely fair and they don't even do that program that way any longer where they take people from other job fields and i think in part that's why um, yeah. You know, it, uh, they just force converted. So basically took everybody from whatever jobs they were. If you wanted to, to remain in law enforcement, they would just force convert you into the law enforcement community permanently all over again and, and be at the bottom of whatever they had for you because you, you were not part of the, uh, the initial um, flock, if you will. So they, they don't do that anymore. Um, now it's just all masters at arms if they're you know um, whatever job it is that you're doing so gabe um we're about an hour into this and uh i'm assuming you're still married at this time you're married i am seven years no i mean yeah but in nevada you're coming (laughs) to okay the close of your tour Yes. And you're married. How long did you stay in the Navy? So I was in the Navy for 22 years. And I think it's probably more appropriate to say we were in the Navy for 22 years, because honestly, that's, uh, that's a lot of why, you know, we were able to, uh, to, to put that many in It's just, we were both in. So, and you were married for about 21 years of that. Does that sound fair to say? Uh, yeah, or, that's right. We uh, maybe more. So, more. and I'm not advising this to any listener who's out there, but um, but my wife and I met there at the Defense Language Institute at the yeah. same time as we first met Lucas. Yeah. Uh, we married within three months of knowing each other, and we've been married ever since. And so, um, I basically have uh, I, I have hardly known even time in the Navy um, without. Yeah you know, without my wife, uh, in it. So yeah. what was it about your wife that, um, well, she wasn't your wife at the time, but what was it about her? She was in some, was she in an air force uniform when you met her? She was in that, those camo or uh, whatever she was wearing the blues. Uh, was she, no. did you know that she was in the air force? No clue. Okay. Uh, I just, I just knew that she, she, um, had somehow been delivered straight from heaven. And so I, I just uh, determined, you know, I saw her sitting there waiting, didn't know for what, uh, I knew I was waiting for the church van to pull up and take us out. And, um, and as I said, I told my roommate uh, who was standing watch, Hey, I'm that girl over there. I'm going to marry her. And he laughed at me and said, yeah, you know, whatever, you haven't even talked to her yet. And, the, and so she, she ran from me for about probably three or four weeks. And then after that, um, she, uh, she finally gave in and, and, uh, we, you know, I, I was, I couldn't say, I couldn't have been any happier to find out that she was getting on that same bus to go to church uh, with me at the same time, because, you know, I, I, uh, you know, as a, as a follower of Christ, I was looking for another follower of Christ, somebody who, who felt, you know, as, as, uh, as strongly as I do about uh, my relationship with the Lord. And so um, she's uh, yeah, she's been a, an absolute rock since that point. And, you know, it took her a while to come around, but when she did, you know, um, 27 years coming up on 28, is pretty good. Yeah. And she, I, I'm having a memory. I'm not sure if it's a real memory or not. Um, 
<clears throat> but my room, I had two roommates when I was at DLI. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I lived on the third floor for the first part of that. And I had a view of the bay, the Monterey Bay. Um, and then this for most of the time there, I lived on the first floor. Both of my roommates, I only had one at a time, but both of them were Hebrew linguists. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, the first guy, I don't even remember his name, to be honest with you. I just remember he was tall and he kept to himself and he was kind of weird. Um, as opposed to all the other people at DLI who are not weird. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, but then I had Nick Carter as a roommate for, yeah. for a long time. And Nick, I think, was in Liz's, Elizabeth's um, Hebrew class. I, I'm not sure if I'm remembering that correctly, but I know no, that I think that's right. Hebrew. So I she was right. Did she finish Hebrew? She made did it. She graduate? Uh, Wait. She did not graduate, um, but not because of anything to do with, uh, you know, with her aptitude. She was actually knocking that thing out of the park. Um, but when, you know, when we had decided that it, we, it was time to get married, um, she, uh, she went to, and this just goes to show you a, a complete, it's a change in the times basically. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, when we decided to get married, we knew we were going to different places and she was in Hebrew. And so that meant for her as an air force linguist that she was going to go to England at the time. Um, what that meant for me, what my job, where I was supposed to go was to Guam. And that was, uh, those aren't too close. And there was really no place for us to be together except for Maryland. And so, um, you know, my detailer, go to the person, Hill? Uh-huh, that's right. Oh. Yeah. And the person uh, who the detailer, who's the person who, who sends you where you're going to go uh, when you're gives you orders to go where you're going to go once you graduate a school uh, told me, well, you know, if, if you get married, you know, then maybe, you know, maybe we could get you together. That's a possibility. So we talked it through and um, and they, you know, the her tech sergeant, which is an E6 in the Air Force. So, um, you know, kind of a somewhat senior person when you're that new to the military. Sure. Um, she, t- she had a conversation with him and, and said, um, well, um, we've we've decided we're, you know, we're going to get married. And he said, well, we're not going to be able to, to station you together if that's the case. And she said, well, I think I need to, to get out then because this is the guy I need to be with. And I know that wow. I need to be with him. And, and so he said, he said, well, I don't think we're going to be able to let you out. And she actually <laughs> said to him words to the effect of, I don't think that's really up to you. And so, wow. so, so she told him that uh, she believed that this is what God would have. And, and so if that's what he wants, that's what's going to happen. And, um, and sure enough, they ended up just letting her out of the air force to, uh, to marry me and, and go with me to, uh, to Hawaii where we got to hang out together a the lot of us. And so, um, so yeah, she's, she has been a rock um, in terms of, our, our time together and our service. And I absolutely could not have done what I did if I did not have somebody, uh, you know, that supportive of me throughout it. So, yeah. You know, I, I knew all those details and now I'm just getting refreshed on them. And it's, it's amazing to me uh, that that story is very powerful looking back because mm-hmm. it's not normal for people to spend that long a time in the military actually it's not normal for people to spend that long in the time in the military actually i think a lot of people get Mm -hmm. out but the people that 
make a career out of it. I don't think it's normal for them to be married so long and, and to have been married. And I, I was at your wedding. I mean, I saw you guys, you were yes. like kids. You were, we were yes. all just kids. Um, Absolutely. We were just, I was such a scrawny little thing and uh, you were scrawny little thing and everybody was a scrawny little thing. And, 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 yeah. and, and we all had our lives in front of us and for her to make that decision at such a young age and for you guys, what I, what I think of you, when I think of you guys, I think of you guys as stable. Hmm. I thought of you as stable back then. And every time I think of you, I think of stable now. That's why I, tr I trusted having my guns in your house. I was like, <laughs> this is a stable family. Um, and you guys were such a joy to be around whenever uh, I, w I was a single guy at the time in Hawaii. And 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 that's how I remember you guys, you know, in an earlier stage in Monterey. Um, what was the secret to is there, is there a secret? I mean, I'm sure you're going to say there's no secret, but I feel like yeah. there is some kind of secret. There's, there's gotta be something. Uh, is it just your personalities? Is it just, um, you're on Zoloft or something like an extra dose of Zoloft or, uh, what's the other one? Um, John Harwood was reading this book, uh, there called, um, I don't know. It's had some drug in it. Like it's a pharmaceutical, <laughs> but you know, what's the, what is it? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of ingredients in there. And I mean, I, I'd be remiss if I did not start by saying that Jesus is probably the first key, um, you know, because honestly, the, there's, there's a principle that I think we inadvertently followed um, even from that time, because for me, you know, I only, I only came to saving faith in Christ at 14. So that was only five years before we got married. Um, I grew up around the church, but I was not, uh, I, I, I basically was just sort of a fan, like an admirer, you know, standing on the sidelines kind of thing saying, oh, you know, yeah, I believe in a God, but, um, but I watched, I watched God transform my older brother's life. And when I watched that, that became a reality for me. Um, he was an absolute thug. And, and so watching God do that mighty work in him, I thought, okay, this is not, we're now we're not just talking you know, now this is not theory. Now I'm watching this impact on the life of somebody that should have been probably in prison at some point. And so, so for me, I'd only, you know, I'd only been a Christian for five years at that point. Beth had been for most of her life. I mean, she was very young when she decided to follow Christ. She was maybe five or six or something along those lines. And so um, she's kind of had the, the, what I, uh, there's a book that, uh, um, that's called, I'm trying to remember who it is that wrote it, but it's, it's basically called along obedience. And so she is kind of the definition of that for me, you know, along obedience. Um, and, and so that was probably the first key, but then there are a couple of things in my life that definitely impacted, um, that, and that would be, so my parents divorced when I was, uh, I was five when they divorced. And for me, my father was not uh, present even after that. I mean, I saw him probably once every couple of years growing up. And, uh, and so, 
for me and really even for my older brother, he's, he's been married for, you know, about a year longer than I have to the same, to the same wife. And he's a law enforcement officer. So, you know, similar kind of context with a lot of strains and stressors, but for us, um, I think you got one of two things that can happen when you see some sort of a tragedy in your life. It's either that it's, it's like you're riding a bicycle and, you know, you, you, you look at something on the side of the road and it's either that you go out of your way to avoid it, you know, or you look right at it and you just drive straight toward it inadvertently because it's pulling you to it, whether or not you're actually logically, you know, considering that. And so for me, it was the, it was the avoidance. I just saw, I saw that train wreck and I'd been through that before. And so in my life, um, Beth and I endeavored right at the beginning of our marriage, just to simply, you know what, we're we're not, no matter what kind of disagreements we have, we're not going to bring up divorce. That's not, we're not even going to have that word come up in a conversation. So let's just agree now that's not coming up. We're not going to, we can have all kinds of different options. There can be, you know, any number of things, but that's not going to be one of the options on the table. And so I think there, there is a certain element of just refusing to quit in that and just work through those difficult things. Uh, I think we live in a little bit of a disposable society that is, you know, that is willing to to walk away quickly from things when they get tough. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, she, she was not. And so she's been, I, I can't tell you, I've always been, you know, the greatest person, the easiest person to get along with. I mean, you don't, you don't become yeah. a senior chief by always playing well with others. And so, um, you know, I, I, uh, there, that could be the reason I didn't become a master chief. That's a different story, but uh, you know, I, I do think that, uh, I think that some of that stubbornness in, in addition to what, uh, you know, what we just, our, our faith and our values that we held um, uh, deeply together, those probably combined to make that. I hope Beth is, is listening to this eventually in the future and feeling the love. And I, I wanted to make sure I went back to something I might've inadvertently cut you off on, which was, what did you think? And when you first saw her, I yeah, I got, uh, caught up, I got caught up on what she was wearing and I, I want to yeah, go back to that. Well, and, and I can, I can still remember what she was wearing. She was wearing a, like an almost full length dress with, with uh, lots of flowers and, and, you know, purple was the color I remember within the flowers. And, uh, and so I, uh, yeah, I, I just remember thinking there was something, there was something about her that automatically called me, uh, called me to her. And, and the funny thing is, and this is not, you know, it's not intended to be arrogance. I was an arrogant, you know, little punk when I was uh, young, but, but the reality is, and I think that's why God took my hair if I'm going to be frank about it, but, um, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, the reality was up to that point, I never had to chase anybody like that was not any, I didn't worry about that. Like I, you know, I, I was used to being chased. And so, so it was kind of interesting that, that, okay, I, I feel like you hear those stories all the time where it's like, Oh, love at first sight. No, that that's what that was. In fact, that night after we finished that ride, I, I called the, I called my mom and I said, I, I met the girl I'm going to marry. She doesn't know it yet, but I met the girl I'm going to marry. And sure did you enough, talk to her? So, I mean, what, uh, to, what was that to, like? Yeah, what yeah. was that first conversation like? Well, I tried to talk to her on that, uh, that, but you know, that little uh, mini bus thing that we were yeah. on and uh, she talked a little bit. It was a, it, it was a Volkswagen van Do you remember those little old 
gosh, old, the uh, late sixties, maybe, you know, Volkswagen mini van kind of thing. Oh yeah. And, uh, and I classic, tried a bus, this I guess. Is classic California right here. This is, it classic. totally was. Yeah. Yes. You and you and me remember a classic California that changed after nine 11 or something. I don't know what, I don't know what happened with the internet and cell phones, but we, there were, do you, do you remember, um, there being newspapers? I think we got to pause for a sec. Uh, yes. Are you back? Okay. I remember newspapers. Yeah. There were newspapers and, and when you had to call your mom, there was a payphone. Remember that? And the, and the deal and a line. uh, Yes. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. And there were, that's actually where I was. (laughs) Yeah. There, there were TVs in the lounges, but not in my room. I didn't have a TV in my room. What are you talking about? Let alone a computer. I had a typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. I had like paper to write a letter and I had stamps. So that was, I mean, we were right up. That was when we were right up. There was a Republican governor, Pete Wilson. There was, yeah. there was, you know, it was, a, it was a very different California in many respects. Mm. And uh, little did we know how, how much the world was going to change, but you know, the, the Volkswagen bus on the way to Carmel Valley Baptist church, that first of all, that church is not, I don't think it's the same church. It's the, the word Baptist isn't even in the word in the, in the title of the church. I've been back many times nope. and, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm always suspicious of a church when they take the word Baptist out of it. I'm like, what are you doing here? Why are, why are you doing that? Yeah. Their first, ba- yeah, first Baptist it's... Monterey didn't do that. I notice. No, no, they did not. That's right. Yeah. Sanctuary Bible Church was the last I knew it was called at once upon a time. Well, at least they have the word Bible um, in it for gosh sakes. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it it, uh, it it was, you know, uh, in trying to talk to her, I, you know, it was not a it was not an uh, easy conversation. She really was kind of not having it. Um, she was interested in another guy, uh, another Navy guy that lived in another place that was from her hometown. And so, uh, so it took a little bit of warming up and, and eventually, you know, uh, she, she saw the light um, and, and yeah, that can only be divine because clearly, you know, I was, <laughs> I was not doing it of my own power. So maybe you should have wore your dungarees to the church service that might've gotten her. That, those, that could have those, those tight, tight jeans, bell bottoms, those tight bell bottom uh, jeans with, you know, up your butt crack like that, mm-hmm. that might've flotation been devices. <laughs> so you guys ended up having kids. We did. Um, yeah. Yeah. The both of us together. Um, they were, uh, there were three of them still are. Um, so we have, uh, we have our oldest daughters, 26, um, I'm well, we are grandparents. Uh, so she's, um, she and her husband have three children. So this is, um, we've got one who's three, one who is uh, two, just turned two this past couple of weeks ago. And then one who was just born prematurely, but he's now just a little bit past when his regular uh, due date would have been and he's healthy. So what's that like being a grandparent? Surreal. You know, if you had asked me if I would be, you know, we were parents so young, our, yeah. our first, I mean, I think you knew us when you were when Beth first. Uh, yeah, I was, I was about 20. She mm-hmm. was, um, she was about 22 and, uh, 
you know, our, our daughter, she got married around the same time as we did and um, has, yeah, had kids back to back to back. And so it's kind of bizarre, but I can tell you, um, gosh, it's, it's a, it's one of the coolest things experiences on the planet. So um, yeah, highly recommended five stars, you know, two thumbs up. And your one of your daughters ended up being in the Navy and going back to that language school, right? Actually, that same daughter, she, um, she joined the Navy and I, I didn't really expect it. Um, I had never, I'd never really enjoyed people who pushed the military on their, their kids because um, I taught at the Defense Language Institute years later. And I remember the, I came uh, and visited the you. folks. Yeah, that's right. They and so me, I, I remember. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, ran, I, I ran remember into Master Chief Burger. He was oh, a yeah. silly villain. He had been my yes. boss at the time. Yes. And he remembered. Yeah, me. he was great. He was a good, he was a good, well, he, he's one of those, you know, mind like a steel trap kind of guys. So yeah. he's, uh, yeah. yeah, he's great. Always, I would say one of my professional mentors for sure. Um, but one thing I couldn't stand when I taught there was when you would get people who were children of prior, you know, prior students there, a lot of times they would be children of very senior people um, who had then come back later in life. And oftentimes they were very entitled. And so I, uh, I was not interested ever in pushing my kids into that. I, you know, I, I of course, they knew that I'd served. They understood the context. Mostly I, my youngest one to the least extent, because one time he actually asked me, he said, dad, uh, aren't you in the army or something like that? <laughs> oh and no. I wow. Was like, I was like, well, I, I guess I hadn't done as good a job as I probably should have of educating oh, them on all that. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I didn't push it. And so when she came to me and said, Hey, you know, I was, I was actually, I love language. I think I'd like to go to the defense language Institute. And I said, well, you do, you do, you write your own story. You know, if this is, if this is what you want to do, then you do that. I will yeah. be just as proud of you either way, but you do it. And, and she did. And basically I just told her, don't, don't tell anybody you're my kid, not because I'm embarrassed, but I don't want them to, you know, I don't want them to feel like they owe you anything or like they, I want you to make your own, make your own path. And so the only person I told there that she was going through was, uh, was Rick Berger. And I just okay. said, yeah, I just told him, keep an eye on her, you know, just, just for her own, you know, for her own safety and that kind of thing. But from a distance, she doesn't need to know, you know, just, just like that. And in fact, uh, he did, you know, he'd send me every once in a while, you know, he'd send me an update and let me know kind of how things were going, but, um, she did, she did well. She graduated, um, like, I think maybe top of her class. I, uh, I think she ended up Hebrew, just like her mother, just like her mom. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think she ended See, up with the that gives me chills. Which, that gives me yeah. chills thinking that, yeah, I mean, it, it, me just too. Gives, it just gives me chills. Wow. Yeah. I, sometime, let me, let me show you a picture sometime. I've got a picture of being at her graduation. It was probably the last time I was in uniform and were you uh, active duty so, when she was there? No, I had recent, I had just retired. And so, okay. Since I had just retired, I I, uh, I was still in enough shape that I could still you know stuff myself into a uniform. So I yeah. shaved and you know put on the uniform and went as though I had been. So, gotcha. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's yep. it like being retired from the Navy? What kind of uh, well? Do, do you have any duties that are? That you, is there anything you have to do? Or no? Okay. 
No, there's no, so there's no forced connection anymore. Um, any connection that you choose to keep is kind of just your, you know, to what level you're comfortable. And I can tell you, um, when, when you ask that, I actually wrote uh, an article on this once upon a time, because, you know, that writing is how I process, you know, process things that yeah. I, I experience. And, and so I, I wrote, you just share, after I got you want to share how people can read that if they want? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually, I've got a, um, I've got a blog that is on WordPress and it's called cross and cross and anchor reflections. Um, so if anybody'd like to read anything on that, I have a few, few reflections on leadership, um, quite a few uh, reflections on uh, on on basically a spiritual walk. Um, a lot of a couple of things, even on the Denver Broncos. I'm a huge Denver Broncos fan, so there's a bunch of things on there. Uh, but yeah, I I wrote an article on that um, to process that. And and you know honestly, there's a grieving period that comes when you when you retire from something like that. And in in essence. It's very similar to what I would feel uh, divorce to be when you first come away from that. And everybody kind of walks through that at a different pace uh, and, and in different ways. Um, I tried for a bit when I went back to Georgia, where I was kind of around that same community uh, to, to engage in things like, you know, uh, senior enlisted trainings every year when new people are selected. Of course, in the Navy, you go through a a multi-week training process to help people transition from their prior pay grade to a new one. And, and, uh, and I was always a really big part of that. And in fact, that played a large part in my, uh, you know, my love for learning and development and, and training. And so, um, so, you know, uh, I tried to go back to some of those things and I think, you know, you experience pretty quickly a couple of things and, and they offset. So it was good. One of those things is the, a feeling that, I'm out of place. This is no longer my home. You know, you, you, you can't go back to that. But the other thing I experienced as I looked around the room, as I recognized that many of the people in that room who were in the senior leadership positions and training other folks were people that I had trained and I had brought up. And so there was a passing of the torch that I was able to just kind of put closure to that and let that go. Um, so, so that all took for me a few years, probably to process through to where I felt really good about it. Um, other people, they never leave it. They basically retire and go straight into a government job and work side by side with all those same folks. And so they, they just can't pull themselves away from it to do that. But yeah, for me, that's kind of, that was kind of my process on that. Gabe, I appreciate you uh, sharing all this stuff. This is great stuff. The, I want to reconfirm the name of your blog is called Cross and Anchor Reflections. Is that right? That's that's correct. That's right. And you write that under a pen name, so people are going to not see your name, Gabe Morris. What what name will they see? Well, there'll be a couple of things that you might you might find on that. I mean, so Gabe Morris is on there, but you'll see oh, uh, okay. something says Blue Ridge Bronco. Okay. Um, Blue Ridge Bronco is another name that sometimes I write under because I do write some stuff for, uh, for sports related things. Um, you know, a few things here and there. What part but, of Denver um, are you yeah. from? So I was born in Thornton. Um, that's, uh, there at the, the hospital. And then I grew up of course in Salida, Colorado, um, in the mountains there near Monarch ski resort. Where did you go to boot camp? Orlando, Florida. I, uh, at the time we had Orlando, San Diego, and then of course, uh, Great Lakes. 
And yeah. because of was I was in Colorado, they just said, "Where do you want to go? Pick your pick which one." I mean, either yeah. one works. And I was one of the final companies to go through Orlando before they shut it down. So I was one of the final ones to go through San Diego before they shut it down. Mm. We had the Marine Corps on the other side of the fence. Uh, Logistically, I understand why. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Logistically, I get why you go with Great Lakes. But yeah, that's right. Come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we, we just, I, I mean, Orlando was, was hot, but either Orlando or San Diego beats Great Lakes any day of the week. I mean, in terms of climate, you'd much rather have, but, uh, I was in boot camp less about a week after I graduated from high school, something oh, like yeah. that. It was, it was the summertime. Wow. Um, well, uh, senior, um, We've kind of skirted around what you did in the Navy, and that's yeah. because it's mostly classified. Yeah. And uh, and it's highly sensitive stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, it, those of you listening or interested in this, you want to check out Captain Will, Will Palmer's episode where he goes right up into the line. <laughs> and I don't think he went over the line anytime during that time, but he's a captain in the Navy. So, I mean, what, who am I? But, but it's the same issue there. But, but how would you describe what you did for most of the time, not the law enforcement side, but sure. how would you describe what you did after that and before that? Yeah. So before that, I, I would say, um, you, you know, that's, that's the time that we spent together. And most of what I did during that time frame um, was what I would call intelligence reporting. That was most of my, you know, most of my job. Uh, writing stuff down. So maybe that was the beginning of my, you know, my love for writing. Um, but I would say after that, I, I, uh, when I did come back to the community, interestingly, in the community, I mean, the cryptologic technician community, as, as opposed to the law enforcement community. Um, interestingly, they sent me back for Arabic. And so when they why sent would, me why back, would they do that. Well, and anyway, never mind. I'm well, sure, they're sure there's a good reason for it, right? And so what's funny is, so they sent me back for for Arabic, and um, I was in Arabic language school when September 11th happened. I was actually a student there at the Defense Language Institute when that happened. Um, how and, many dialects of Arabic are there, and and how does that feature into your basic language training? Oh, so I mean, there there are I, I couldn't even tell you the total number of dialects. I mean, there are uh, it's there are as many of those as there are of English, and you know, and and uh, you know, I, I consider, of course, all of the dialects across the United States to actually be genuine dialects of English. So I would say, yeah, there there are at least that many. Uh, what they sent me through is what's called modern standard Arabic, and so modern standard Arabic is kind of uh, for for those who aren't aware. If you were to turn on a news channel in any place across the Middle East, even today, that's what you would likely be hearing is some form of, of modern standard Arabic um, religion. Uh, religious texts are often in a very similar form, modern standard Arabic. Uh, politics are handled in modern standard Arabic. So it's a higher level. But the reason that you would you would have that as a as a common thread through all of these is that that the grammar is the purest in modern standard Arabic as opposed to any of the others. And so if you can understand that well, once you learn kind of the distinctions between kind of like in, in the United States, once you, once you learn a couple of, um, 
um, you know, a couple of colloquial phrases and things like that from different areas. Well, then, you know, you, you can pretty well use your basic understanding of English to navigate any place across the United States. You might just have a couple of, you know, a couple of things you needed to brush up on. So that was kind of the that was the prevailing philosophy for a while. Um, so they sent me through that. Um, and, uh, and eventually that's what I came back and taught, I would say. Uh, that that by itself took up between teaching and going through there. That was about five years of of uh, you know my career right in and of itself uh, was was doing that in Monterey. Was it back to back? You went through as a student and then you taught, or no? So I went through as a student, and when I went through as a student, I uh, I actually went to uh, um, to submarines and I did did that job on submarines, and so basically you know, to kind of stay, stay in the friendly territory, really, uh, the main thing is you, you're kind of um, doing indications and warning is, is what you would call it. So what that means is kind of just monitoring, um, you know, monitoring to protect the fleet um, from any kind of, uh, you know, potential dangers that they might uh, run into. And so if you were to deploy, um, a bunch of linguists with a, a particular large group of American war vessels. The reason that you would do that is because you were potentially going to be in areas where uh, there'd be people who don't like you. And so you just want to put uh, some, some smart people on there who can tell you uh, if you're in danger, you know, is there a is there something we need to be concerned about? And so, uh, you know, so that's really a lot of what, what's entailed in that. Um, I've done that job so there, that was on, that was sub submarines. Um, after that, I, I have a stint that, that, uh, is a dog leg, which I, I went to, I was accepted into an officer program. Uh, and then, uh, you know, then, you know, bowed out intentionally in the middle of that, uh, when I was selected for chief petty officer, I never, uh, due I never to knew that. really hold on. I never knew. Yeah. That so that's an hold interesting, on, you, you were accepted that's an interesting an story. Which, which yeah, officer was, program a, was it? Well, it, it's called, it, it's, it might be called something different now. At the time, it was called Seaman to Admiral. Oh, yeah, that's what um, Will Palmer so had. That's what right. Had. So, yeah, there were quite a few that, yeah. Uh, so, I was, I was accepted that program, um, really. And, um, you know, it was the kind of thing where, you know, my evaluations were strong and my, uh, you know, I, I, I was uh, being awarded regularly and all those things. And, uh, and so it just seemed like the next logical step, everybody was saying, Hey, you, you should do this. You should really go do this. I mean, uh, so I did, I, you know, I took their advice and I applied for it, not really thinking that I would get it. Um, but then I was picked for it. And so I went to, uh, of course there's been, a, a kind on, of, a, you would, you would have been, uh, uh, a petty officer first class, which is a an E six, which that's is a right. staff sergeant, and that's right. Marines or Army, tech sergeant, yep. Air Force. So this that's right. This is one lower than a chief. That's right. And mm -hmm. you were up for chief at the same time. That's right. Okay. I was. So then the question mm -hmm. was: Are you going to go? Are you going to go ensign, which is what the butter bar is mm -hmm. right out of the Naval Academy? Or are you going to be that's a right. chief petty officer? And that's exactly right. Okay. Yes. And so there it was um, with that decision to make. Yeah. Um, both decisions I didn't expect to actually have to make. I, I again, I, you know, I, I probably underestimated what, what, uh, you know, what God had allowed me to accomplish in that to that point in my 
career. And so I didn't really think that that was going to be a realistic possibility to go to the officer program. But when they selected me, um, I, I actually, I went to the University of Colorado. Um, and so, you know, speaking of academics, uh, I, I was in Ward Churchill's class, if you remember uh, about Ward Churchill during that period of time after you 9/11. went to Boulder. Uh, yes, I did. G- Gabe um, yeah, Morris went- and Boulder. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was a fiasco to say the least. I mean, you know, I did well academically. It wasn't, that wasn't an issue at all, but uh, it, was you know, it was, uh, so I was actually majoring at the time in international relations and I've heard, uh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's apparently it's a big thing, but, uh, you know, so I did that for a while. Um, it was about, you were in I Churchill's it, class. Okay. Yeah, I was. The, yeah. The white guy that thinks he's an Indian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the, okay. the guy who he All wrote right. that, uh, gosh, what was the article called? It was something like when chickens come to roost or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, so. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a bizarre kind of season. So I, I went into that, uh, and, and, um, you know, Did one you of the things that happened, uh, no, I got close. I eventually I ended up getting a degree, but I, I was on the 13 year bachelor program, the 18 year <laughs> master's program. Um, you know, it was, uh, a lot of, a lot of life happening in between all of that stuff. What year um, was this? Just so This can... was, yeah, this would have been 2000, probably 2003, something like that. 2003 to 2004, uh, some, sometime like that. Okay. Um, so I had already had some credits going in just from a couple of community colleges here and there, wherever I could pick up something, I was doing stuff. And of course, military credits that whoever yeah. would take them you probably I had like 5,000 credits or something. That's actually kind of what it was. I had so many, but none of them were in the same sock. And so I was like, yeah. well, you know, what, what will you give me for? I felt like I was bartering. What will you give me for this? I mean, yeah. I, I've got this stuff. Will you take it? Right. So, so actually I got quite a few, um, out of there. And I was probably about a year from graduating completely from them. Um, and, and I had a, a, an executive officer, the way those things work, it was an ROTC unit. Uh, the, the commanding officer of the ROTC unit was, uh, was a Marine Corps, um, Colonel. And so that's an 06 up there, pretty high, you know, pretty big deal kind of guy. Uh, and then the executive officer was a Navy uh, commander, so an 05. And, you know, the way it works there when you're in these seamen to admiral programs is they put you in a, a fake kind of officer uniform and you get fake military ranks on, you know, on your collars. And and then you wear all the ribbons that you you have that you'd earned up to that point, you know, and, and your warfare devices and all the stuff that you have. And then you, then you uh, hang around with a bunch of people who uh, are not far off of your children's age in some, in some ways, you know? And, uh, and so I, I thought, okay, well, this is a season I can, I can, I can live with this. I have been, I have been shaping and molding, you know, young officers from my current, you know, position for a while now. So I feel like I can probably do this. Well, that executive officer, she sat me down uh, my second day there and she said, um, she was looking over my performance evaluations, my reviews, you know, and she said, uh, she said, well, I see on here that you were a leading petty officer on a, on a submarine, you know, for a period of time. Um, yes, ma'am, I was. And, and I see that you were, a, a, you know, a leading petty officer at your, your last duty station where you were. Yes, yes, I was. And she went through all my different accomplishments and she said, okay, well, she put my, my review down and said, none of that means anything anymore here. All of these people are your peers. 
And, and I remember thinking to myself, um, you know, okay, I, I, I can get the humility aspect that she is kind of going for on one hand, but on the other hand, I'm doing a disservice if I'm not training these people with what I know, because I've been doing this for a while and I can actually help them to be better at what they're doing. She said, I don't want you to mentor them. I want you to just be their peer. And I thought, I'm not sure how I, that I can do that. So of course I disregarded that, that order and, and mentored them anyway, uh, as I had opportunity to do so. And we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but that commanding officer. She sounds like that, a real uh, idiot to me. Oh, she was, she was not a gem. Um, she was somebody who I think was kind of bitter maybe, and was kind of put in that place uh, against her, you know, maybe what she would have preferred. Um, and that Colonel was a, he was a phenomenal guy. And so we got to uh, those chief results came out and I don't, do you remember Devin Mayer? No. So, so Devin was from the same group as, uh, as you, you know, your same uh, language family and all. Okay. And, uh, and, and so he was there with me at the same time, also an E6, also, you know, a petty officer first class, and he was also up for chief. And we were both in this program together and uh, the results came out and he was on the road and didn't have, uh, have access to them. And he asked me, would I look at them so that I could tell him whether or not he'd been selected? Cause he was kicking around. What would I do if I had been selected, you know? And so I looked on there for him and I saw that I had been selected and he was not. So of course I had to deliver bad news to him on that front. Um, which has turned out fine for him. He retired as a lieutenant commander in 04 and it was fine. Oh, but, well, hold on. Let me stop right yeah. there. So you're, what city is this meeting taking place in? Is it in Boulder with the, the 05, the idiot? Yeah. Yeah. That's in Boulder. That's right. In the, actually in the stadium there at the, the university of Colorado stadium is where the ROTC unit is. So, you know, so I was in, in the stadium. Really? It is. Yep. Yeah. There are offices underneath the bleachers there. And so it was, uh, no yeah. kidding. That's where the so unit like is. Rudy, uh-huh. Like Rudy's running around mowing the lawn and sleeping there at night. Exactly Actually, like that. Yeah. Wrong school, but yeah. But, but, but premise is the same. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so you're in Boulder and you're with these college kids who don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Not really. And she's telling you, don't share any of your wealth of information from the actual Navy. Yeah. And that's exactly uh, what she said. Yeah, She's saying this is a Navy officer too. And that's right. in, in Boulder, which is like yes. the epitome of, uh, I wouldn't say stupidity, but I would say, because there's a lot of smart people in Boulder, but I would say, uh, it's a, it's a wisdom vacuum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's, um, I can, and, and so you're taking classes and then the chief results come out and you make, yes. chief. Uh, do I have all that right? Yes. A hundred percent. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're okay. tracking. Okay. Yeah. So, so I find that I, that I've been selected for chief petty officer, which in the Navy is a really big deal. And honestly, yes, to is. that point, I hadn't considered what that would mean to me. Uh, I hadn't considered the impact it would have on me. Uh, when I saw that. Hmm. And so as soon as I saw it, the first thing I did was I went up and talked to my wife and I said, um, so you're not going to believe this, but, and she, she just knows me well enough. She just knew. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, hmm. well, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to pray on it. That's what I'm going to do. And so I did. And, uh, and, and basically what it boiled down to for me, I mean, obviously, 
the armed services need good people at all levels. You know, they need people who are strong leaders at all levels. But what that's why I typically... stayed at the lower ranks as long as I could because we need good people <laughs> down there. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You do absolutely. And so what I had done is I, I basically I prioritized in my mind what was it that drove me uh, in my service. You know, we'd already talked about a couple of those things. My relationship with the Lord is one of those things. My devotion to my family. When it came to what I loved about the Navy, though. It was mentoring um, younger sailors, building up the next generation, passing the yes. baton to somebody who was ready to do that. And so, so that's what it boiled down to. And, and you know, and not everybody listening to this would know, but the role of a chief petty officer as compared to the role of an officer, that's one of the primary distinctions. Your, your job is to develop up and to develop down. That's, that's what makes you kind of a, a unique position uh, in the military services. And so, so I determined um, this, okay, yeah, maybe I'll disappoint a few people, but I've got to do this. I've, I, I, have to, I have to go that route. So um, I went well, there back a, to that same. Another, on- there's another issue that maybe people are not aware of. Yeah. And I'm not a total idiot on the Navy, so I, I'm aware of this, but feel free to yeah. correct me if I get this wrong, okay? Because it's been yeah. a while. But um, there's an issue of if you were to become an officer and go be a butter bar, that you wouldn't necessarily be in the intelligence field at that anymore. You know, you might be a line officer driving a ship somewhere. Whereas if you went to become a chief, you would be in the intelligence community still doing, um, you know, maybe, um, well, what we called special projects or sometimes yes. called special operations sure. and uh, that could potentially involve special warfare operations. If you were qualified to do that stuff like that, mm-hmm. whereas you might be, this came up when we talked, I talked to Will Palmer, captain Will Palmer, mm-hmm. where he drove yes. ships. He learned how to drive a ship, which is, um, it, it might not be what you want to do, but, but so did that factor in at all? And feel free to correct me on any of that if I well, have wrong. No, you're actually correct in terms of how that often works now. So in Seaman to Admiral, and, and they eventually called it Stay 21, so STA-21, so the 21st century, and then Seaman to Admiral. So they, the way that that works is you have two different routes you can take. One of them is when you make your application, you choose. You say during that choice, I'm either going to just accept whatever commission you give me, or I'm only going to apply for something in a particular field. And so you, your options are more open to you. If you say, I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. And there's your chances of selection are increased exponentially. Okay. That's a very good way you describe. um, That's part of why I was so surprised that I'd been selected as I, yeah, I, I, that's part of why I was so surprised I was selected is because I told them I'm only doing this if I get to stay in cryptology. And there were oh, only okay. like two spots in the entirety oh, okay. of the Navy to do that. And so I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm limiting my options here. So if this is going to happen, it's going to happen, you know, uh, it's going to happen within these parameters, you know? And so I was and selected got, to do that. And I was supposed to go be spots? a cryptologic officer. Oh, I did. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so that's I, a big deal. I, uh, that, I would have. Okay, been, everybody, everybody listening, it was, that's yeah. a huge deal. 
you, 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 that's a huge deal to get one of those slots instead of being unrestricted line, which is unrestricted line means yeah. you're, you're learning how to drive the ships and eventually be a, an XO and a CO of a ship. You're in line to mm -hmm. do that. And eventually you're in line to be the chief of naval operations. That's right. Uh, yep. And be, you know, in the White House, you know, yeah. briefing That's the president. Right. But but uh mm -hmm. you you decided to stay in that in the you decided to tell the Navy, I'll do this if I can stay in my field that I'm in now. That's right. And and they said, Yeah, well, we prefer to tell you what to do, actually, uh Petty Officer Morris. But we do have two slots for that, and that's in the whole Navy, and you got one of those. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so, so knowing that, right, I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of a question of, okay, I probably took that from somebody who really wanted that, um, you know, and so I had to, that, that weighed on my mind as I was kind of thinking through this. And, you know, of course, now after I later ended up in personnel, I, I know that my vacating of that then opened it to somebody else. So it's not like it actually, you know, like it was taken. Right. It just meant one of those other people then got a chance to do that. So, okay. so, but still, once I had determined, okay, I need, I need to be a chief. Um, that's, that's what I was designed to do. I need to be, you know, a chief. And so, I went to that same executive officer's uh, office, the one that told me don't mentor people. And I sat across from her and uh, told her the story, what I was going to do. And there was a form that she was supposed to sign to let me drop from the course. And I, was, I don't recommend this person for future, uh, you know, commissioning programs. And one of them was um, that I'm fine with this person applying for future commissioning programs. And I did not have a desire to, to have a future commissioning program. That was, I, I had yeah. no desire to have a future commissioning program. However, the principle of the thing was, and I, so I told her as much, um, I, uh, she, she said, I'm, I'm not going to, to mark here that you can be, uh, you know, you can have future commissioning programs because, you know, because you're quitting. And I said, let's get this straight. <laughs> I am not quitting. Um, I said, your program did not beat me. I have a 3.97 GPA. Um, I, you know, I, there's nothing about this program that was too hard for me. I'm making a conscious decision to go serve sailors. That's what I'm doing. Wow. And so she signed the paper angrily, sent me out of her office. And so the very next stop was to go next door to that commanding officer's office. He had to sign the, the next part on that piece of paper. Nice. So he, um, he'd heard already what was going to happen. And uh, so he, I, I went to the door and of course, in those environments, there's, it's for students. So they want you to do all these facing movements, all of these fancy things to, you know, to position yourself just right and to look very professional in front of them. And I, I walked in and started those things. And he said, no, 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 knock all that stuff off. Just, just come here. So I went there to have a seat. So have a seat. He said, give me your paper. And he looked it over and, uh, and he got to the part where she had marked that I wasn't recommended for future programs. And, and he, pointed at it, turned it to me. And he said, are you content with this? And I said, no, sir. And he said, I'll be right back. And he <laughs> stood up, walked out of the office, walked around to the other side. And I heard a dressing down like you wouldn't believe coming from the other side of that. And he came back with a different mark on that paper. And, <laughs> and then that was kind of it. And he said, he, he said to me, he said, based on what I've seen from you, since you've been here, you made the right decision. Um, he said, you know, uh, yeah, carry on. Thank you. And, and so then I, uh, 
then I, I became immediately available for orders because um, I was somebody that they were not expecting to have access to in the enlisted community anymore. And so, so they said, well, you got two, two choices and both of them involve you going unaccompanied to Bahrain. Uh, so I went to Bahrain for a year and a half unaccompanied, um, meaning an unaccompanied for those in the audience means that that's without uh, wife and children. Um, so I had, uh, at the time we had actually all three children, but my youngest was about six months. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I had to go unaccompanied as a kind of as a result of that decision, but ultimately it was where I needed to be. And thank, thank the Lord. I had a wife who was supportive enough to, you know, to back that play, knowing eyes wide open, what that was going to mean. So, so you went from Boulder to Bahrain and like 2.5 nanoseconds. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like, it sounds like a book, but yes, I did. As a matter of fact, go from Boulder to Bahrain, you went from um, which uh, Bahrain, crap class in Boulder to right yeah. in the thick of it. And That's did right. you put on, did you put on chief right away? Where did you go through your indoc for chief? I, I went through that actually on in Aurora at the, uh, um, Oh goodness. The, there is an air force base there at Buckley, Buckley. and there's a Navy element on, yeah, air, on that, Buckley. Mm -hmm, on at Buckley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Buckley. And yep. That's where Airways. I went. Okay. That's exactly right. So, yeah, that's what happened. And then basically I transferred right away to Bahrain from that point and, and did the, the same type of indications and warning support. So, uh, but from there, I actually, although not air crew, you'd be so proud. I, I served on what we called temporary flight orders. Uh, they oh, had wow. no, uh, not enough air crew people to do the job. And so they said, Hey, I know you're here on surface orders. So surface vessel orders, but would you consider flying with us? Uh, so they sent me back to Pensacola to go uh, learn the very basics, get dragged across the top of the water and dunked in a helo dunker. And uh, you <laughs> Oh, know, you so did? Well, wow. for those. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So so for oh. those in the, you know, did you go to NAS was, Pensacola for that or where? Oh, yes, I absolutely. Oh. I absolutely did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So for those in the listening audience, the helo dunker is an attempt to uh, to drown you multiple times <laughs> so that you can find your way to the surface. Um, yeah. If you happen to get did some you go to so it's a lot of fun. No, that was the thing. No, I didn't. No, sir. No, I went to what they call, I think it was called Sear C or something, which is just a watered down version of it. The, the, if you get caught behind enemy lines, how do you react thing, which was a little different. So, okay. Well, yeah. Um, sorry that you missed Sear. That's a, that's a one for the books, but that, yeah, the Hilo dunker, man, that that's, I still think about that one. Um, that's, yeah. a, that's a good training. So yeah. you, uh, when you were doing subsurface operations, do you want to say where you were stationed for that? Sure. I, I was in Georgia, uh, but what happens Georgia, on when, when you do, Georgia. yeah, that's right. Always what happens with, uh, subsurface operations with cryptologists, um, you know, you're not, you're right. not what you call what you call ship's company, you know? So that means that you don't live on the vessel year round, um, or with the, the crew of that vessel year round. Instead, what happens is, uh, you are, you are, uh, gathered together with smaller groups of people and sent all over the world to join up with wherever those vessels happen to be, uh, to do those jobs. And so, um, were you, you know, were I, you on an I, army uh, base, were you on Fort Gordon? Uh, yes, mm -hmm. I was. Yep. I was. And then, uh, but yeah, I, you know, obviously this, the 
extent of, of deployment that happens from that is that you get in an airplane and then after that you you get yeah. um you get flown to undisclosed locations all over the world and dropped into the middle of the ocean and and uh, <laughs> you know join up with people literally <laughs> I, yes that's exactly what happens yeah yeah so well did you get your dolphins i mean i already I did. know the answer but um yeah yes i did what's yes, dolphins I, I, for I, people subsurface warfare qualification is what it is so it's, it's a big um, deal people every this is a big vessel deal. yeah that's right every every vessel type um, major vessel type in the in the uh, navy has associated with it a warfare qualification and what that really the real intent behind the whole thing is to ensure that everybody on that who is qualified in that way knows uh, the vessel well enough to be able to keep it afloat in, in emergency circumstances, uh, to be able to, uh, to go to the appropriate battle station in case something happens, uh, you know, war related while you're on that. Um, all of those are a part of the warfare qualification and they involve everything from engineering spec specifications of that vessel uh, to, uh, to damage control um, responsibilities on that vessel all of those things kind of come to bear. So on a submarine, yeah. um, it is an engineering marvel, and there are so many different elements to uh, you. Typically, just an idea. In order to qualify on that, at some point, you have to have memorized. If I'm a drop of water in the ocean, how do I get from outside of that vessel to drinking water within that uh, within that vessel? And it's a very long process. Uh, that it goes through to get that to happen? Or how do I go from becoming a drop of water to becoming electricity within that vessel? Right. And all of those things are traceable. So you have to know all of those things and you sit on a board where people, similar to, a, to what you do in a dissertation, more or less, you know, where you're, yeah. you're doing a defense and people right. grill you nonstop for them. Right. So, yeah. And, and what do you, do you feel comfortable saying which ship get, uh, you earned the dolphins on? Yeah, I don't mind at all. So Connecticut, the uh, USS Connecticut was what I, you know, where I was when I earned that. that Virginia which is a, class? What is that? No, it's a Seawolf class submarine. Seawolf class. Yeah, there are only a few of those out there. So, can you say what a Seawolf class submarine is? Well, it's it's a, I mean, it's a it's a fast attack submarine similar to what you have. Oh, replace the Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. It, it augmented it. Um, okay. Yeah, it augmented right. the Los Angeles class. I, I, I did deploy in a couple of Los Angeles class as well, uh, but um, the yeah, the Connecticut was the one that I was on when I qualified. You know, I just now realized that. Oh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you later, something about LA class, Pack Fleet combatants that I served on. Um, so this that's that's a big deal. Now. You, you were a chief in Bahrain without your spouse. That must have been mm -hmm. tough. How did you guys get through that? Yeah, it was tough. Uh, we don't have, you know, obviously back then we didn't have the same types of communication methods that we have now. I mean, you had something similar to what you have with Zoom nowadays, mm -hmm. um, but it was not um, even just the time difference alone when you have three kids and all that kind of thing makes it a little difficult uh, to, to even carry those on. Um, I did make it back about every six months. One of those was because of that uh, temporary flight order school in Pensacola. So I got to go back and get drowned. And then because of that, they let me <laughs> see my family for a little period of time. And um, so, um, you know, so that was, uh, where was your family living? 
yeah, they were living. So th that's kind of a blessing of that circumstance. And it's one of those things, again, when you can look back and see, okay, God's hand was in that. And, and that was of course, my, my wife's family is from Kentucky and there is no place that you can be stationed anywhere close to Kentucky in the Navy for the most part. And so, yeah. um, so I'm when sure I, yeah, that's right. Which, you know, you might as well be deployed if you're, you know, one of those in many circumstances, but we, um, you, when when we got sent or when I was sent to Bahrain, the Navy actually said, so uh, we'll pay to send your family wherever you want them to go, wherever. Oh, wow. And oh, so cool. so we said, well, um, there's an army base there in, you know, near Elizabeth, uh, uh, Elizabeth Town, uh, Kentucky, which is Fort Knox. And so, you know, we said that at least she'd have, you know, military there and her family's from Kentucky. Let's send her there. So we did. And we did not know this at the time, um, but her mother, who had been in remission from cancer for uh, for years, um, shortly after that, she um, it, it took a turn. So she got to spend uh, that year and a half there near her mom. And then her mom passed just after that tour was over with. So um, so it was really a, a kind of a, a sweet arrangement. Uh, you know, you, you see sometimes God will choose things for you that you would never choose for yourself. Uh, because he, he, you know, he sees the bigger picture, he sees the end of the parade. And so he knows uh, what that means for you. And while you might not select it, um, it's for your ultimate good. And so that was definitely one of those scenarios that we looked back on later and were able to go, man, that was miserable, but man, God is good. You know, I can't believe he, he pulled that off in spite of uh, all of those negative things. So, so she had family around then she did. Um, okay. They, you know, they were probably, I, I guess they were about an hour away. Uh, down the you know bluegrass parkway there beautiful state um, but uh but pretty pretty close and so it is oh it is it's a gorgeous state but yeah it was hard um you know the for me it was um easier probably than for her in that i just stayed busy all the time you know i just yeah. if i because i had no family i just stayed at work until 11 o'clock at night and then i'd you know come come home and go back to work at you know 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And so, um, you know, for me, it was just like a long deployment, you know. Gabe, did you ever get depressed? Yeah, um, I, yeah I think you do uh, when you're out there by yourself. And, you know, thankful for, you don't realize how close you are to other military people, you know, until you're in that foxhole situation where you're just out away from every, all your support structures and, and you really have to rely on people. Um, so I will say I did not end up getting depressed. Like I, like I'd seen other people get depressed. Um, but I would attribute that largely to, to my faith. Um, you know, not, not because of me and not because I'm special and I have great coping mechanisms. I, I mean, sure. I could say uh, that probably a difficult childhood in some ways contributed to, uh, you know, to some of those coping mechanisms over time. But I would also say that, um, you know, it, if you, if you don't have anyone you can go to with those, uh, those concerns and those feelings and those, uh, you know, those, uh, those problems, well, that's where it typically ends up snowballing is that if you, if you just feel like you're, there's no out and you have no way to talk to anybody about those things. Um, but I, I, you know, people would think I I'm nuts. The, the amount of, uh, you know, out loud personal prayer I probably am involved in without, you know, realizing it. And I, and I think that probably um, saw me through in a lot of ways. Are you doing Bible studies or were you going to church while you were in Bahrain? 
No, that was actually kind of a, that was like a, I would say sort of a, a vacant spot for me in a lot of ways. I mean, I was doing self, you know, study, but in terms of like groups of other Christians, there was a chapel on base, uh, but it was, yeah, it, it was not, you know, not the kind of chapel that I would typically have, have gone to, you know, even in the States or anything with my family. So I did feel very much like I was kind of left to, uh, um, you know, to navigate those things by myself. I, I don't think, I don't think there was another, actually, there wasn't another Christian in the entirety of my, my, uh, wow. you know, my unit at that time. So, wow. um, yeah. So how many was, people were in the unit unit? Oh, I mean, it was a relatively small one by comparison. So we're probably only talking a hundred people. I mean, if that, and of course that includes some people that were maybe deployed uh, aircraft and things like that. Um, but, uh, but you know, yeah, I, man, I come to think of it, there might've been one, you know, one other guy, but again, I was a chief and he was a, a first class. And so you've got those, those kind of barriers yeah. that exist that you got to be kind of mindful of. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, that, that, yeah, that was probably one of the more challenging aspects of being there is just the yeah. lack of, of, uh, you know, uh, fellowship in that way. What, what was the weather like? ridiculously hot. Um, at night, it was uh-huh. commonly above a hundred degrees at night. Um, and we, we hit over 120, a couple of several times actually during a, a couple of week period. And, uh, you know, you'd basically just hop from shade to shade as best you could, but it was, you know, it was miserable, uh, in terms of heat and humidity there. So for people that don't know where Bahrain is, it's in the Persian Gulf, uh, it mm-hmm. faces basically right. Iran. It yep. behind it is what Saudi Arabia. What what's behind? That's it? right. Okay. It's attached, yeah, to Saudi Arabia. Okay, so they give you yeah, a by sense. A, it's by below, a causeway. It's a it's below Iraq. And mm-hmm. it's That's above, right. Yeah, Yemen and okay. So you could look at a map, but look at a map. Um, so when you come out of Bahrain, wh- where where do you go from Bahrain? Yeah. So from Bahrain, um, I got, because of those orders, it was kind of one of those situations that you see in movies happen all the time that doesn't really happen that often in reality, which is, um, well, you did this hard thing for us. Now, where do you want to go? And so, uh, so that, that became kind of a reality for me because of, uh, those having taken those year and a half orders, uh, even though I didn't really have much choice, it was, uh, <laughs> my order, my choices were, do you want to go for a year and do air crew, which was six months worth of training that I would be gone from my family anyway, or do you want to go for a year and a half and do, you know, surface in that? And I thought, well, uh, okay. Surface doesn't require extra training. I mean, if I'm going to be gone, I'm going to be gone. So let's do it. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, um, you know, when we were done with that, it was, where do you want to go? And so for me, I'd always loved training people. I've always loved teaching people. I've always loved investing investing in people and trying to, uh, you know, trying to help people become better at something than they once were, whatever that thing was. And so, um, so I just asked, Hey, uh, you know, my language scores, you, you test in these, in the language field, you test annually for your language. Were you still testing in Tagalog? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I did. Yep. At that point I didn't need to, I just did it because there was like, there was money incentive to (laughs) score a certain number. So, uh, so I did that. But, um, you know, you, you have to, you have to score pretty well to teach those languages. 
and I had the scores to do it. And so I just asked the, uh, the guy who sends you from one place to the other, uh, the detailer, I said, um, you know, do you have spots at the Defense Language Institute? I'd like to teach. So it was like Top Gun, you know, that thing where they get to the end and they say, you know, um, yeah, it pains me, but now you have to teach in it. this situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, with less hair, because that actually was when I first shaved my head. I came home with no hair. I left with hair and my wife was shocked beyond, uh, you know, words probably that I came home with no hair. So, um, but a bald maverick, yes. So I, uh, I was, um, I asked to go to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California to go teach. And, and, uh, and so the guy that, uh, that made the decision on those orders, turns out he was actually going there to become the senior enlisted leader for the Navy um, element there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he, you know, he said, yeah, okay, we can pull that off. And so I went and worked for him for, um, for a while uh, and, uh, and taught there for about three years close to three years what was his and, name um a lauren bailey i don't know okay. you you remember him yeah um, so yeah so he's he's retired since but you know we uh yeah i so worked that's for when him i came and visited period. you when you were there yeah, right? yeah that's right okay that's exactly right yeah you so came you out to, to visit yeah so you were there for three years is that right about that yeah i think a little maybe a little shy of that um just because of a, a, another special set of orders that came along after that. So what happened after that? Yeah. So after I finished uh, teaching there, which by the way, was probably the most stressful job that I had while I was in. Um, if you think about all of the shenanigans that every student you were with um, was involved in, and then maybe multiply those by, um, by, you know, 15 years or whatever the difference was between a lot had changed in 15 years in terms of what shenanigans people could get into. So they kept me very, very busy. It was, um, you know, it was a very um, high, you know, great, it's, it's teaching, but you're responsible for every aspect of their life on top of that. So, so, you know, the, you cut them loose from your class and then you go and you monitor them to make sure that they shave and that they're, you know, their clothes are on right and that they don't do dumb things and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then after that, when I, when I finished it, um, I, I kind of had always had an interest in becoming the person who sends people from one place to another and, and the, the detailing job. Uh, so, so I said, you know, um, I, I, uh, I'd like to apply for that job and it's an application job. It's, it's something you have to process, you go through. So I applied for that job and, and, uh, went through the interview process and they selected me for it. And, um, then I, so I went were, to Millington chief at the time I was, mm-hmm. okay. yeah, I was, a, I was a chief at that time. And, uh, and then, yeah, so I went and, and, and did uh, Millington, Tennessee, which is Navy personnel command. And, um, and then worked as a detailer, sending people from one place to another all across the, uh, you know, the, the world of foreign language specialists. And, um, How and big it of was a community a, you know, is that so people have an idea of kind of what the administrative roughly, roughly, uh, roughly 2,500 ish, something like that, uh, people is what you're looking at from the enlisted side, uh, which is what I was responsible for. So I started that job off with uh, responsible for the, uh, the E five and below group. And then I finished that job out as the responsible for the E six and above group, sending them from one place to another. So there's two um, detailers. And then, uh, yeah, yes. I don't think mm-hmm. I knew that yeah, there were two detailers. Oh. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there. I don't think there used to be when we first started off. I don't think we were big enough to, to warrant that, but uh, it got to the point after a while that, yeah, just too many people for one person to manage well. So they was that us, your last tour then? It, it was the last assignment. It was the last duty station. I should say um, I had, I was promoted to senior chief uh, during that tour. And then during that tour, like toward the tail end of that tour, an opportunity came up. Um, there was a guy that uh, I had worked with in the detailing job. You may know him because he went to school with us, Barry, um, uh, gosh, um, Armstrong. So, yeah, he, he went through for another language, but it, it was something in the something in the Asian language families. But he uh, he was there as one of the detailers with me and he had taken a job with the Navy Bureau of Personnel, which is in the same location, just in a different set of buildings. And they handle a little different stuff. Most of what they do is is like big picture human resources for military. So uh, determining how many people will be promoted, determining how many seats you need for whatever schools you know you have as a community, determining what attrition rates you need for your schools in order to achieve the graduation rates that you need. You know, determining you know, all of those, all of those elements. Um, that's Bureau of Personnel, and so big long range planning type stuff. Um, so he moved from detailing into that job. And then he wanted badly when a, a job opened up in Korea for him to go do, it was a master chief job. He was a master chief and, um, and he wanted badly to go do that job. And so an opportunity came up for him to take it, but he would have to find somebody to take his job at the Bureau of Personnel to do that. Um, there were no takers from the master chief group. Nobody wanted the job. And so, uh, so he as a last ditch effort asked me, and again, just another uh, act of God's sovereignty in the middle of that. My wife had been praying for some opportunity that would somehow keep us there to allow my daughter to finish high school because we've dragged her all over. And she had been in the same high school, uh, for most of that time because of my, this tour, and really what didn't want to pull her for her senior year to go. And so it was just, you know, last ditch effort, you know, praying that, that God would do that. And, and so, you know, same day, um, this guy calls me up and says, Hey, would you be, nobody will take this job. Would you be willing to take this job? Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, I said, let me call my wife and talk to her about it. And I called her and she was silent, super quiet. And, uh, and so I, I kind of pried out of her with what's going on. Well, I just prayed that, that God would open an opportunity for us to stay here. So our daughter could finish school. Cause she was wrecked about having to go, you know, our daughter was, and, and so it happened. Um, he called and, and uh, so we said, yeah, okay, we'll do it. So I took that job. It was an E nine job. Um, wow. and I was an E eight. And, um, so I took that job and, and, um, uh, made decisions for, you know, for the community on a big picture level, uh, up until retirement. So. Wow. So you, you stayed in Tennessee for four years. Is that right? Yeah. A little over actually. I think it was closer to, it was probably closer to five years by the time it was all said and done because of that, uh, that extra wow. uh, tour in that spot. So, and you were doing a job that was one rank above you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I retired, I was. And that part of Tennessee, is that near Memphis? Or where oh is yeah, that? Okay. it is. Yeah. It's, um, 
I mean, you can't quite throw a stone and hit Memphis, but Memphis is spreading. So you're getting close to being able to do that. It's um, it used to be a, a, a Naval aviation training uh, base. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they repurposed it when they moved uh, the uh, headquarters stuff from, um, from DC out there. So would you say that staying there for five years was an answer to prayer? Absolutely. It was. Yeah. Um, not, not necessarily my prayer. There were a lot of things yeah. about that, that I, you know, uh, I enjoyed, but there were things about it that I, uh, you know, I, I missed kind of being around having, you know, sailors and things as well, because I was mostly administrative, uh, at that stage. Did you wear um, a Navy uniform at that job or were you? Wearing yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, I did. How, how many answers to prayer would you say that you saw during your time in the, in the Navy? Oh, innumerable, but I mean, you know, there are several, I kind of refer to those things as, as Ebenezer stones in a sense, you know, that you just kind of go back to those moments where, where you can see that God uh, heard you, that he answered your prayer and that he'll do it again. So it's those moments that, you know, when you hit those places in your life where you go, I, I, you know, I can't see how God's going to deliver on this particular thing. And it's odd, but it's human nature that no matter how many times you've seen him do that before, you'll be gullible enough when the enemy starts telling you he's not going to do it this time, you'll buy it. And you need to have those moments to go back to. And so when I, when I experience those, I try to make a point to tell them over and over again, because that's what they did in the Bible, you know, told those stories over and over again to their children and the next generations, because um, they, they build your faith, they strengthen your faith, but they also give expectation to those people that you share them to so that they recognize, Oh, I know these people, these people aren't nuts. These are people who watched God work in their life. And so he'll do that for me too. And so, yeah, it's, it's innumerable, but it's, it's just, there are so many times where it's happened and always been in a way that I can't take credit for. Um, You know, it's, it's not ever been because I'm so, you know, I'm so great. And if, if, you know, if everybody else would just do it like this, it would work out that way. It's always been, okay, let me knock out all of your underpinnings so that I can then um, make sure that you understand that this is of me and not of you. And, and Mm. so uh, that's the place we come back to over and over again. When you say the enemy, what do you, what do you mean by that? You, you mentioned that uh, what I mean is, is Satan. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, Satan Satan. Exists? I mean, the, the Bible tells us that absolutely. That there 100%. Is Satan. Okay. I, yeah, I do. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, the Bible even tells us that we're not, you know, we're not at war just with the, the governments and, and all of these things around us. It feels like that sometimes, but we are actually, it's a spiritual battle. You know, this is something that's yeah. going on at a much deeper, bigger level than what we see. So um, how yeah. would your Navy career have been different if you had not been a Christian, do you think? Well, in some ways it would have been a lot easier. Um, you know, there are, you know, and I say that because I, I, there is a, there's a popular view of Christianity. And by that, I mean, in churches across the United States, there are, there is a, a gospel that is being preached that tells you that somehow suffering um, is not uh, congruent with, uh, with what Christ preached while he was here, that suffering is somehow, um, you know, somehow separate from what it means to be a Christian, that you would prosper from being a Christian. Um, but prosperity um, by, 
you know, by God's definition and God's economy is different than it is by the world's economy. And so, you know, the way that we, um, that we experience prosperity when we are uh, followers of Christ usually involves eternal reward. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't involve necessarily monetary gain or, you know, that you'll promote or that, you know, that you'll make a lot of friends or all of those things. In fact, if you actually read scripture, um, Jesus goes out of his way to tell us over and over again, the opposite of that, that, okay, if you follow me, this things are going to be tough. It's not going to go easily for you. You're going to have a rough go of it. And so, um, so I would say, yeah, it would have been easier from a worldly perspective to just give in, uh, and go, go, you know, go along to get along. I, I will say that, um, there are elements of, of military service and probably also in the academic world. Um, you know, there are elements of military service that we have somehow become arrogant enough to believe originated with us. Um, you know, principles, uh, values, those types of things that we would believe we would say, oh, well, yeah, they didn't exist until 1775 when the Navy, you know, came to, came into existence. But the reality is many of those things I, I was able to adopt easily because they were scriptural principles before they were ever, um, you know, Navy core values or principles. And so in that way, maybe easier. I lost your audio. Sorry, I was on mute. Can you give us an example of that? What, like, what do you mean by that? Like, how? Yeah, so, so. Yeah. So, you know, integrity is a good example of that, right? So you, right. you will hear in, in every military service and every leadership course, they will talk about integrity right. and they'll talk about it in, an, in a way that makes it sound like it's original to them and that, you know, um, you've never heard this before, but right. it's important for you to behave like this. Yeah. Whereas, you know, um, you and I know that, that as somebody who follows Christ and reads scripture, you know, okay, integrity was around long before even Christ walked the, the face of the earth. Um, integrity right. is integrity because God defines it, you know, and so mm -hmm. we know what it is because we've seen it first in, in God. And so that's just an example uh, yeah. of what you yeah, might, you know, you, you, we've adopted, but it's in right. fact a scriptural principle. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What would you yeah. say as we wrap up here? I got sure. a couple more, couple more questions for you. If someone was thinking about joining the military, a young person, yeah, you spent your career, your first career there. What would you say to that person? Mm -hmm. Any advice if they want it, if they were going to listen to you, what would you say? Well, um, I, I guess in some ways, you know, I would, I would have to know where they were coming from because what I, one thing that I'll say is, uh, the military is not for everybody. And I would not just try to convince anybody to join the military. I wouldn't. Um, many of those, when I talked about that one tour being my most difficult tour in many ways, Monterey, um, yeah. a lot of that was, that's right. Yeah. Instructing in Monterey. Um, a lot of the reason that that was so difficult is because there were so many people and I say so many, but I mean, just percentage wise, there were a, a a large number of people who were there because of what they could get. 
Um, they were there because of uh, maybe education benefits that would be paid to them for having, you know, enlisted for a certain amount of time. You might, you know, they might pay your college loans or, uh, you know, uh, something that you'd signed in your contract. Maybe you would get an enlistment bonus. Um, you know, maybe there would be there would be just um, reasons other than your why. And I say that because yeah. if you are. If you are in it for those reasons, then when it gets tough, um, everybody around you suffers. Uh, everybody around you will uh, will pay for your selfishness. And I say that because not to shame people for wanting to join for those reasons, but only to say it gets really hard at some point. And those those reasons aren't big enough to serve as your why when it gets tough. So I would say you had better... Uh, if you are joining, great if you get those benefits, but if you're going to join, um, have a deeper sense of why um, than just those monetary benefits or those temporary benefits, or because I just didn't know any better. Um, and, and I'll be honest, didn't, I did not Rick have Berger a very... Just, didn't he just smack the hell out of these people? Because I he was my boss at one point. Uh, <laughs> so for yes, everybody listening, yes. my boss, a decade... Oh gosh, a decade and a half almost before this hit was now a civilian working with him. And this guy was a hard ass. He took a perfectly good air crewman like me and put me in special operations. And I was like, what are you doing? But he thought that was perfectly normal yeah. anyway. But, but did he not, was he not involved with that? Was he too high up? Well, he, he could way? not. So, so first of all, the times have changed. And so some of those things that you oh. could get away with back in the day were not so much a part of that anymore. You can't hit um, them anymore? No, no, there's no, none of that. There's no hitting. And in fact, like not even dropping for pushups, you can't do that uh, anymore with people. Um, so so it is, uh, it, it's, it's a changed scenario. The game is, is different than it once was. Um, and, and so... You know, it becomes even more critical because of that for for people coming in to have a reason to buy in, you know, and for me, what I can say is how do you discipline yeah, go ahead. them? How do you, how well, do you... that that's a that's a good question. And a lot of this, it comes from and let's be honest, right? Knowing what your why is helps me as your leader to understand how to hold you accountable because you know, if you happen to be one of those people who, um, you know, who is motivated to do what you do for some sort of an altruistic reason, whatever that happens to be like, it's, it's that, and I I'll tell you mine, right? So uh, initially I was, I'll be the first to tell you, I was the guy who joined the military because I had no clue what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I told my dad, you'd wait, I'll waste your money. If you try to, you know, send me to college, I, I don't, I'm not ready for that. Um, so I, I did that and I was a punk yeah. because but I can say when you know why the Lord, that was my primary sense of why, but then even kind of trickling down from that, you know, my family was part of my why, you know, I looked at that as, okay, I'm going to do this 
because doing things in this way honors the Lord, but then it also honors my family, whether it's you want to say your family name, whether it's you want to say, you know, whatever that reason happens to be for you. Yeah. Um, when you usually need to discipline them, but when you do, it's it's easy to bring them back because you can just kind of remind them of their why. When you have those people who are there for the money, um, they're just, they're, they're mercenaries. And so they're, that's why that was such a stressful assignment for me, because, you know, when you're just there as a mercenary who that makes it more important to you, like the person next to you doesn't mean as much to you as they ought to, um, you know, and that's, that's part of where, what I would tell somebody is know your why have it, have it solidified before you go in. And if your why is only selfish means then then wait, don't go yet. Don't, don't do that yet. Uh, you'll probably cause somebody, uh, you know, pain. And so. some whys are better than others. That's exactly right. They are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not all created equally. Um, well, you know, and they morph, like I said, why is better? Well, you know, I, I think, I think part of it is, um, if your why is, is um, important enough to you to affect change in your behavior, whatever that happens to be, again, if it's family for you, because say, let's say, you know, let's say you're at, you're an agnostic and you come there. I look, I, I recognize full well um, that while, while I believe firmly that, um, that, that Christ is, is something that all people will have to come to, you know, uh, you know, he's someone that all people will have to come to reckoning with at some point or another. I recognize not everybody is in that place. And so I'm not going to say, Hey, I want a theocracy and everybody ought to, you know, think like I think and do all of that. I mean, it's a narrow gate for a reason. Um, But what I will say is, you know, if, if your why is family, for instance, and it causes you to think twice before you do what you do, um, then it's having a positive impact on, on your behavior one way or another. Um, you know, if your why will pull you back from the brink of doing something stupid, it's having a positive <laughs> impact on you one way or another. But if your why is the kind of thing that, that to you is disposable, whatever that happens to be, uh, again, if it's a monetary value, if it's a, you know, if it's a, again, like I, I don't know why, you know, I, I don't know why I'm doing this whatsoever. I'm just here because it's a paycheck and I didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's something that, you know, you could probably find something else to do and you could probably find somewhere else to be. Most of these kids, as you know, are really smart. They may lack other skills, but they're really smart. They are. Um, so they have options. That's right. Um, but I think that's really the difference. They're usually Is smarter thing big mind. enough. Yeah. They're <clears throat> usually smarter than their character has developed their, their, their uh, absolutely mental capacity in terms of just smartness is outpacing their character and their Amen. integrity. Amen. Um, what would you say to someone? Here's a slightly different question, but mm-hmm. other side of the coin on the marriage issue, you're, yeah. you've been married and you, you weathered 21 years of marriage in the United States Navy uh, not an easy task to say yeah. the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, I know your wife gets a ton of credit for that, mm-hmm. but how in the world? Okay. So if, if I was a young person and I, I wanted to ask you, how do you stay married for so long? How do you make it work? Do you have any advice? And if, if I was willing to listen, what would you say? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say first and foremost, it's a little bit similar to the last question that you asked. And, the, and, and I kind of would say, you know, um, so military service, when I compared my separation from the military earlier to divorce, um, I think there are some similarities in the two and that they, uh, there is a relationship that you are entering into in, in that, that sort of thing. Um, and, and the why is equally important in both of them, you know? Uh, so, so I would say in marriage, if you don't share together the most important why in your life, then uh, you're already starting off at a disadvantage. And so, you know, for, for instance, if you find, and of course, scripturally, we talk about that as being unequally yoked. And that's, yes, that's meant in terms of, you know, of, of where you stand in relationship to the Lord, you know, each individually. However, you know, a yoke being, a, you know, that which thing, that thing laid across the back of two ox, right? And, right. and they're, you know, if, if one's uneven, um, then, then somebody's carrying the bulk of the load and, and getting worn out and somebody else is getting away a little easier in the whole thing. And they're neither one of them benefiting as much as they could be in that. So, so I would say a similar thing in marriage. Um, if, you know, if, if you're not both um, counting in, in, in our case, the Lord is most important. Um, then one of the two of you is going to, and rightly so choose the Lord above that, uh, you know, above that, relationship at some point be forced into that sort of situation. You don't want to end up in a scenario like that because you know the reality is if you both have that same priority, then instead you're both chasing, you're both chasing the Lord. And so as you're both chasing the Lord, it's like a it's a triangle. You're both you're both going up and closer at the same time so that you end up at the same point at the end of the whole thing. Um, whereas if one of you is headed off this direction to the, you know, on this uh, trajectory and another's heading off in this one, um, it's real. There comes a point where that line is too tight. You can't, you can't maintain that any longer because you know, the, the distance between those two lines is just too great. And so, I would say growing together in those things that you mutually agree at the beginning are most important to you um, is, is a, a key point. Um, and, and again, I would just say, just practically speaking in a day in and day out basis, it's similar kind of to the military thing in that we, we vowed not to use that term, right? Just not to pull up the concept of divorce, not to have that as an option. Um, I had a similar mentality in the military. It was, you know, after I got through those initial stages of trying to figure out what I was going to do, when I determined that that's where I was going, um, it, it was, okay, it's not, I'm not considering the option of, of getting out at this point. I've committed to this, right? Whatever that is. So I would say um, commitment in a lot of ways is just burning the ships, you know, I mean, not, uh, not giving yourself the option of, no of plan B. Of, yeah, not not giving yourself the option to go back. So gotcha. yeah, that's probably what I'd say. You got a lot of wisdom, man. I, I really no. enjoy listening to you. Um, and I've enjoyed catching up with you. And I know that you have a lot more to share. And maybe we'll have you back if you want. Uh, I especially really love listening to you talk about the just the faith and and what what you've learned through all of this because um 
I've known you so long and it's, it's, it's just, it's, I feel like I'm still talking to the same guy. That's, a, that's the weird thing, everybody. I feel like I'm talking to the same guy that was 20 years old or 19 years old. And I know you've matured a lot and you really have actually. And so have I, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, we can hope, you're, right? You're just like the same guy. And that's what I love about it. And uh, so we, we thank you so much for spending all this time sharing your, your incredibly interesting career. Thank you for your service, senior chief. And it's a big deal what you guys have been through. We thank you both, uh, Beth as well. And uh, I, I enjoyed this time. I did too. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, it brings me great pleasure to be able to say uh, Dr. Mather. So uh, thank <laughs> you, Dr. Mather, for the opportunity to join you on here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.